And I immediately got a DM from Dane himself. He was asking me to take it down. <laughs> I wrote and I said, no, you're a notorious joke thief. Fuck you. I like my mornings to be slow. I want the day to romance me a bit before it tries to fuck me. Your words are your words, and you might articulate it in a way that hits people that their words didn't. Welcome to Mic Drop, the podcast where relevancy is irrelevant, and we don't give a shit about your feelings. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, it's both an honor and a pleasure to welcome my next guest to the podcast. He is a writer, creator, instigator. He's not your dad. Are you sure about that? Positive. you positive. It's the one thing I'm sure of. All right. He did write Speech Therapy, Fucking History, and Feel Free to Quote Me series. He did teach the most interesting man in the world how, in fact, to be even more interesting. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the stage, Kyle Creek, a.k.a. The Captain. Thanks for having me, Mike. Thanks for coming on. What, uh, if you had to pick one quote of yours... Right, and you only get to pick one, and you and you have to pick one that you're going to tattoo on your back for eternity. What is that quote? First of all, I don't have backspace available anymore. Let's say you did. Let's say I did. Um, it'd probably be my one about. I like my mornings to be slow. I want the day to romance me a bit before it tries to fuck me. <laughs> is that right? Because uh, it's something that I actually am pretty. I take pretty seriously. I try to wake up early to allow myself to have time to kind of mellow into the day. I'm not one of those people that wakes up and gets right at it. Yeah. And so no matter where I am, I'm someone that always wakes up probably a half hour earlier than I need to because I have to have that quiet time. I like to enjoy my coffee. And so that quote's funny, but it also is something that I, I really abide by. Yeah. Is there uh, are, are there other things other than just kind of waking up earlier than you need to to essentially spit on the tip and, and ease the morning in? <laughs> um, I usually avoid my phone for the first hour if possible. I'm not the best at that, yeah. but I find that if I wake up, I, I, I've lately I've started leaving my phone in the other room when I go to bed. So I wake up, I don't touch my phone. I like to enjoy my coffee. Um, I usually don't let my dog out for the first hour either. Cause I oh. want, I want time just to myself. Yeah. Um, does he sleep in the... Uh... He has his own room. Oh, I got you. I got oh, a great shit. Dane. He's got, his own, he's got his own room and his own bed. And so we put him in his room at night and shut the door and he That's has his own little funny. space. Or else he'll he? be up in the bed with us all night. Yeah. How old is the dog? He's uh, two and a half. Oh, shit. God damn. Two and a half. Got his own room already. Yeah. Uh, what's your favorite beard product? Favorite beard product? Do you have one? Water. Water. I've never used anything in my yeah. beard. That's fucking awesome. Everyone who's reached out to me trying to get me to promote their product yeah. i've just politely declined <laughs> um no it's completely natural i've never put yeah. anything in it yeah i, I mean i've i've tried oils and waxes and shit a couple of times same kind of thing it's like dude you got to try this I i'm won't trying to try like, it i've had people come up to me yeah. and like try and spray it on me yeah. like when it was first getting really popular probably 2016 17 a lot yeah. of people were doing beard products yeah. that have like you know attractive girls and bars out trying to hawk yeah. it at you yeah and uh, i've had people try and help block it but no i've the only thing that's ever gotten in it is stuff that unintentionally gets in it when i'm eating or drinking it's food but, yeah is there, is there a particular food that uh, causes bigger problems than others? Uh, I don't eat sandwiches much anymore. Yeah, because It really depends on the length of my mustache, too. Yeah. If I let it go too long, I only order foods I can eat with a knife and fork, Yeah, um, yeah. which kind of becomes a pain in the ass, but at the same time, it kind of forces you to be a little healthier, too. Yeah. Plus, you look refined. Yeah, yeah. I dig it. Uh, I can imagine you drinking a foamy fucking Guinness right out of the draft is going to... 
I always have a napkin. It's same with my. I always tell my girlfriend that's when I know I need to cut my mustache is yeah. when I have to wipe my face too much drinking coffee in yeah. the morning because uh, every time fun. I put the cup down, I'll see a splatter yeah. of it on the table in front of me. And if that happens like more than every sip, yeah. um, I'd say, all right, I got to trim this down. Yeah. Why do you drink coffee through a straw? Here, let me show you. It's not that, the same. Yeah. What uh, What is your best internet troll story? I don't engage with them too much. I can't really think of one. What is, is oh, the, oh, 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 I got one. Got one. Um, <laughs> here's a good one for you. Um, I forgot about this. Like 2017, Dane Cook, the comedian, posted something that I'd written. And I'm used to people doing that. It happens often with my work. Um, but to have a comedian do it, let alone a comedian who's been called out on doing that stuff before and fairly well known yeah and fairly well known i mean he was someone at one point that when i was younger i I thought was pretty good yeah and he posted a shark quote i'd written about you know do sharks complain about monday i think everyone's seen it at this point it's been you know shared you know far and abroad and i looked at it for a second i was like ah do i say something about this so like it it was no credit to you whatsoever no credit at all oh and i thought me okay it's just someone reposting a meme they found it was funny but then I saw the comments people were saying, oh, this is so great. And the way he was responding, he was taking credit for it. Yeah. And that's when I was like, oh. <laughs> and I texted my buddy and I was like, watch what I'm about to do on Instagram. <laughs> and I took a screenshot of his post. I took a screenshot of the comments. And I wrote this big, long post about, you know, imagine, you know, your career not being able to, you know, sustain itself once social media happens and all this kind of stuff. And I just, I just ripped him apart. Yeah. And I immediately got a DM from Dane himself. Oh, no shit. And he was asking me to take it down. <laughs> and I wrote and I said, no, you're a notorious joke thief. Fuck you. <laughs> and I went and looked at his page and I had left a comment on his post and probably within 15 minutes, my comment had over 5,000 likes on it. That's and so awesome. people were going after him Yeah, and he wrote me again, asking me to take it down. <laughs> And I said, no, fuck you. Yeah. I mean, couldn't he just take And then he po- deleted the post. Yeah. And so then he deleted the post and he realized I wasn't going to take down yeah. my, my uh, post about him. That's and then weird. for like the next couple weeks, because um, people kept bringing it up to me. They're like, oh, I can't believe, you know, you went after Dane like that. And for the next couple weeks, I would check his Twitter. And I would watch, he would post retorts to stuff I was tweeting. Because <laughs> um, I would tweet stuff. And That's then so I would look at what he was saying, and yeah. I was like, he thinks this is about him. Because yeah. a lot of the stuff I write, it's more or less like, you know, if the shoe fits kind of thing. Yeah. And so I was writing just general, you know, advice like I always do. I had totally, you know, forgotten about him, wasn't doing it, other than the fact that I was looking to see that he was still bothered. And it was like weeks. Oh, shit. He would like have retorts and he would use the same language <clears throat> I used trying to respond to me. Yeah. Um, so that's probably the best. Yeah. Uh, troll story i have because it's the only time i've really gone after someone because yeah. i'm pretty used to it and a lot of my writing i figure when i put it out there i'm kind of i'm accepting the fact it's going to be taken you know away yeah. from me and my credit's going to get lost on it. it's just what happens these days yeah um but yeah that was a good time yeah you know uh, to me like there's a there's a little level of uh just pathetic that accompanies that that's uh, that's kind of embarrassing like for him to yeah to go that, at that level too it. yeah you know especially you know because i know he beefed with joe rogan at one point i know a couple of the comedians had called him out and i think as a comedian or as any kind of creator you should have some respect for other creators yeah like if you're gonna post something or share something you didn't create make it known that you didn't create it yeah. um 
if he had just posted it and not responded the way he did in the comments, yeah. it was the fact he was taking credit for it in the comments that was like, all right, I'm going to go after this yeah. guy. Fuck this guy. Do you, do you watch The Office? Uh, no. No. I've seen a couple episodes. It's not my style of comedy. Really? I, mean, I think what turned me off to The Office is the fact that so many people are complete fanboys for it. Yeah. I mean, you know, to me, like, agreed with both The Office and Game of Thrones, and there, there's a few shows that that I would agree and that like I, I was resistant to them for a long time because of that. But then I was like, you know what, fuck it. I'm at least going to give it a shot. And, and both of those, uh, pleasantly surprised me that way. You know, like, the office is clever. Yeah. I mean, and I think you're going to talk about when Michael Scott, like quotes, quotes Wayne, yeah. Wayne Gretzky yeah. and then puts himself after <laughs> yeah. the quote. Yeah, at sure. least he still had Wayne in there yeah, though. No, I know. That's the way you should do it. Yeah. That's no, fucking classic. So yeah, I mean, basically if Michael Scott does a better job of giving somebody credit than, than you do, then you're, you're probably uh, fucking hurting. Uh, what do you think the reason for human existence is? Oof, you're getting deeper right off the bat. Um, I like to break it in, you know, with some easy shit and then hit you over the head with a lead pipe. I would think the reason for human existence is to reach our full potential. And that's going to be different for everybody. And I think that's where a lot of people sell themselves short is they try to follow too much in somebody else's footsteps. And, when you do that, you tend to negate or forget about the things that make you unique. And if you can embrace what you feel like you're offering to this world is and pursue that, that's the only way you're ever going to reach your full potential rather than fitting into someone else's mold. And if we lived in a world where everybody was pursuing their full potential, you'd have like that Atlantis kind of city where it's just this incredible melting pot of high-performing, um, individuals. And I don't know that we're ever going to get there. Cause like we were talking about before this, I mean, a lot of us are influenced whether we like it or not. And I think when you allow yourself to be too influenced, you, you forget your own influence. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think, uh, I mean, to me, the, I think there's a distinction between like the, the purpose of life versus the reason for our existence. I, I mean, I love the answer. I guess I'm curious more from a uh, a creator standpoint why do you think human beings are here why do i think human beings are here hmm. do you think it's an accident do you think it's designed do you think it uh if it is designed if it's by a quote unquote god or so something i, I grew up i grew up lds i grew up mormon really i grew up uh in utah most of my life That's for the awesome. large part of my life i was you know in, in that faith it was about 15 16 years old is when i started falling away and so I did for a long time believe in God and the creator and all that stuff. And once I started being able to really question it and find what I identified with, I went polar opposite and I became very anti any kind of religion. And that probably put me deeper in a hole than any other pursuit in my life was my choice to really deny that there was an ultimate purpose to living. And it wasn't until 2019 when I had like a big mental health kind of uh, breakdown that I started opening myself up to the idea that there was something more. And I wouldn't say I was atheist. I was just someone that didn't want to have the conversation ever. I didn't want to think about it. It was something that I just chose to not even consider. Um, now I'm at a point where I don't know if you know there is a God or if there's something I would consider a God. But I talked about this recently with my buddy Andy Frisella on his podcast. Um, I believe we're all connected with energy and it sounds, you know, kind of hippy dippy, but I've had too many things in my life happen with strange connectiveness to make me not believe that. Yeah. 
And for me to believe any other way sounds sad. Yeah. Um, I like the idea that we're all connected because it makes me feel like there is a lot of hope for humanity. And right now, particularly, I think there's like an anti-human um, element to a lot of people's uh, political ideologies, for example, where the kind of stuff that we're trying to pass, the kind of stuff that we're trying to promote is, is like anti the progression of the human race. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question no, it because it, it is something that I've recently opened myself up to. So I don't have the answer exactly, yeah. but I do believe that we're all connected in a way that we can't, can't yeah. you know, we can't explain. Oh, for sure it does. And, and I would say very similarly, like I didn't grow up Mormon in Utah, but I grew up Lutheran in Iowa, which while maybe it's not quite as strict, well, it's not even close to being as strict, but it's, it's still very structured and, and choreographed, you know, as far as choreographed is good. You know, yeah. Like this is what you should think. And this is how things yeah. are, you know, and, and what have you. And so, you know, I did this three year confirmation process and the first couple of years that I was in the military, I was, you know, going to one of these like more progressive, like life church kind of places mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, it's like or the pastor has a ponytail and he's yeah, a cool young guy. Yeah. He's got a couple tattoos. Yeah. Well, he, so he was, he was actually <laughs> yeah. a former, he was a former NFL football player, yeah. but same kind of thing, like this larger than life personality. Like the, the biggest draw is, is the pastor and the fact that it's like, it's not your dad's church kind of place. Mm -hmm. It's like this new fun, you know, they're singing and fucking rock bands and, you know, and whatever. And, and, uh, and I was totally into it. And then I went on deployment <clears throat> the first time and, and, you know, that really opened my eyes and kicked me in the, in the proverbial nuts as it relates to religion. And I was just like, okay, there's, there's two huge, uh, epiphanies that I'm having in as far as religion goes, which is number one is that, you know, human, human beings are fucking terrible creatures uh, by and large, or, or there is a lot of evil on the planet that I didn't realize existed. I think by nature, we're not, I think by nature we're, we're pretty good, but well, the societies we've been pushed into, and I think uh, again talking about influence, it's very easy to become a piece of shit. Yeah. Have Have you traveled uh, abroad much? Not as much as you have. Yeah. I mean that, that, that I would agree in that most of the places. I mean most places here, I think inherently most people are good. And most people just want to live a life that they want to have their family. Yeah. They want to be left alone. They want to be happy. Yeah. But then there's that potential for evil that people can't comprehend. Yeah. But you know when you go to places where where the, the majority of the population, it, it's a, a legitimate struggle for them just to survive. That, that's where you see human nature go, goes from what most people think of human nature here versus much more of the lizard brain, animalistic, like it's a dog eat dog. I, I, I will rip your fucking throat out if you have what I want type of environment out of necessity. Yeah. And, and so you see... It goes from where, you know, here there's pockets of towns that have that, you know, there's individuals that are fucking evil that will take shit from old people and, and whatever. But those are, are more anomalies or exceptions, whereas most people are going to help the old lady cross the street mm -hmm. or, you know, the 70 year old dude falls down, they're going to help him get up or a kid's pinned under a car and 19 people fucking flip it over, you know, shit like that yeah. happens, you know, and that's kind of what we're used to here. But again, when th there's such a reliance uh, or, or I think that that level of human nature and quote unquote civility hinges on a certain level of, um, like not financial but but a combination of financial, technological, and, and resource flexibility for people to be comfortable enough 
to be able to be that way. Where yeah, you become a product of your environment yeah, at that point. Like if you're thrust into something where you have no option but survival, yeah, where I mean, you're gonna you're gonna forget what it means yeah, to be human. And, and so that that's you know some, uh, some places where overwhelmingly that that is the society is that you know the government can't take care of of anybody, yeah. uh, nor do they even try. You know, there's these tyrannical dictatorships where there's three or four percent of the population that's really really well off and in the super upper middle class and then everybody else is you know living in cardboard boxes and, and killing each other over over scraps and so that was kind of the first thing was was saying that you know hey there, there's a lot of fucking people out here that uh that aren't like where i grew up and 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 don't have the same value systems and, and morality um, kind of infused and, and ingrained in them at an early age to be decent and, and based off of certain things. And then the other thing was, too, is just on the religious front, is in a lot of these places, too, is there are, are religious sects that are vastly different. I mean, polar opposites from what I grew up with. And they're all equally convinced that they're as correct as I thought I was growing up. Mm-hmm. And the only difference is ge- geographical, right, and and what they experienced. And so it, it becomes you know blatantly obvious very quickly that you know that that okay you're you're conditioned no different than the fucking easter bunny or or santa claus that you thought was real until you get to a certain age where you realize it isn't but to me religion is is infused and and conditioned on young children the exact same way all over the fucking planet and this is what i was talking about growing up mormon i got to the age where i could question it this is my problem with organized religion in general yeah um, it's the same with like, you know, identity politics. Yeah. Like when you start believing you're too right, mm-hmm. um, when you forget that other people were once just like you and they were, you know, maybe it was their, their father or their neighbor kind of ingrained this belief system in them. Um, you create that divide for no reason. Yeah. Um, but if, I think if we can strip it back and realize that we're all susceptible to influence, um, we all are a product of our environment to some extent, whether people believe they are or not. It allows you to have some some grace that is crucial in this world right Agreed. now. Yeah, uh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And and I guess my point in all of that was that very similarly, like I grew up kind of in that same way of being pretty predominant in in that direction, and then kind of had to come to Jesus of like, dude, what the fuck? And and swung with an overcorrection so far the other way that I didn't even want to hear about it for a number of years, and then you know, in the last, I'd say probably four or five, six years have kind of come full circle where I'm definitely not religious, but I, I agree. And that I think that there, there is a, an energy connection between human beings, but I also think, you know, in, in, you know, researching and reading and just, you know, hearing much bigger, smarter minds than my own talking about the kind of the symbiotic relationship between, you know, on a, on a cellular level, on, on the micro all the way up to the universe and in terms of how it's structured is that it's all the same. It's, it's basically orders of, of size or magnitude. Mm-hmm. Like, but the, the structure of cells to the universe is, is basically a carbon copy. It's just, it's graduated up, you know, the, the cell, the human body, the, our solar system, the universe, like it just, it, it expands, but it's all, you know, kind of geared the same way. Makes me think that there's more to it than just, there's some weird fucking, dinosaur that that you know turned into a fucking chimp that turned into a human that you know that yeah i would agree it's too it's too uh it's too complex and at the same time it's too perfect um to have just be happenstance yeah i just don't know what it is yeah um but you know to kind of read what you're saying it sounds like we had very similar paths where we, we were raised very religious went polar opposite and then you come back and you realize there's a certain amount of peace in acknowledging that there is something 
bigger than you. For sure. Um, I think a lot of, you know, atheist culture prides himself on being intelligent. You know, there's a lot of quotes about, you know, no intelligent man believes in God kind of thing. I can't remember who said that, but it's a very dismal existence. Yeah. And it's, like, well, it's the hard to find, then? it's hard to find meaning. And it's hard when those times get tough to, uh, to feel like you can pull yourself out of the rut if you don't yeah. believe there's a bigger thing at play. Yeah, I agree. And that it kind of reminds me, it, it begs the question, kind of reminds me of the, um, that scene in, uh, in the matrix with the, uh, with the Oracle about saying, you know, Hey, don't, don't worry about that. And he turns around and knocks it. And, mm-hmm. and she's like, the big question is, is if I hadn't said that, would yeah, you yeah, have still yeah. knocked it over? Is that to me, it, that reminds me of, of this is that, um, how much of that kind of, um, identity or, or purpose that that human beings almost search for because they need something to live for or they need a reason to be alive and not just throw themselves off a fucking bridge, you know? Well, I think we we crave the answer. Yeah. Um, and I think allowing yourself to be open to the fact that you don't know um, makes it easier. Yeah. And that's why I'm comfortable not having a definitive answer of what it is. Yeah. And I'm comfortable with the idea of leaving it open-ended. Um I think a lot of people just, they need the answer that like they need to know in order to find yeah. some purpose. Yeah. And that's why religion's created. And that's why religion is a stronghold in a lot of people's lives. Yeah. I think it's those same people that can't go on a vacation winging it. Right. It's Dude, like, no, I can't I, go on a vacation and plan shit. Yeah. I, I have so, to wing it. That's no, the point of a vacation. Yeah. Cause my life is so regimented yeah. when I am home and working. Yeah. Like the whole point of going on vacation is to not have a schedule. No, I agree. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's like, I'm not going to make a hotel reservation. Like, yeah. The only thing I'm going to plan is if it, if being able to do something that I, I know I want to do, like let's say it's a, a specific resort in a, in a place yeah. or, you know, whatever. But outside of that, it's, you know, I'm going to go there and, and figure it out and see what happens. Yeah, but I book flights and then I usually book the hotel the day before. Yeah. And that's actually the best way yeah. to get a good deal on a hotel too. Yeah. Yeah. No <laughs> shit. But I think, I think there's a correlation between those, those people like, you know, joking about the vacations, but it, it, I think that that's a pattern. Like it's a personality trait where, you mm-hmm. know, the, the people that need that answer are the same people that have to have every fucking minute of every day planned out for them or they lose their fucking mind, you know? And, and those people make shitty entrepreneurs usually too, because it, it doesn't work that way, you know, but, um, you kind of already talked about your morning routine, but I want to, uh, if we could talk about like when you're, when you're in town, uh, you know, it sounds like when we have an understanding of what, first hour or two is like but past that is there uh, you know a certain i eat at this time i don't eat i, I fast until x I, I work out at this time or i don't or is there anything else that you'd like to add so to when that i'm few hours? when i'm home and like i'm in my routine and in my mode and i used to be someone who hated routine i thought routine made me uh uncreative yeah. and i used to try and wing my life a lot and it really got unmanageable and i was drinking a lot and it just became chaotic and I wasn't getting the work done I wanted to get done so I embraced routine probably the last year um partially because I did Andy Frisella's 75 hard program oh shit and I actually just finished the live hard the full one year uh, mark of it and I saw so much positive come from the routine with how productive I was that I started kind of exploring the routine that was right for me and so I tip, I don't wake up to an alarm when I'm home. It's something I always wanted to do. I always used to think, man, not waking up to an alarm would be like the shit. <laughs> Until and, you uh, do it. It works for me. I don't yeah. wake up to an alarm. Yeah, I don't wake up to an alarm. Like I, I don't schedule any meetings or anything before noon um, unless it's like very dire or a client needs to get hold of me. I don't schedule anything before noon. I usually get up around 7.30. I take my first hour to myself. By then, my girlfriend and my son is probably up. Um, we'll have coffee together. And then I either take the dog for a walk 
or I take my son for a walk. I flip flop every other day with them and I go walk for about an hour, hour and a half. Um, out in like the sweltering heat of South Miami where I live and I love it to take my shirt off. I just go sweat, come back feeling like you got out of a sauna. Um, I'll make my son breakfast when I get back because he's usually hungry immediately. And then I don't eat until afternoon. I try to only eat between the hours of uh, 12 and eight. Yeah. Um, so I kind of do intermittent fasting. Um, but then after I eat, I usually block off one to five is my primary writing time. Um, I find that I'm fairly energetic there. And because I'm on the East Coast, I can take meetings later in the day too. So after five, I might start to schedule a couple meetings, which would be, you know, in LA two or three in the afternoon. Yeah. Um, but really I try and control my day as much <clears throat> as possible. Um, because like you're just saying, you know, when you're an entrepreneur and a lot of writings being an entrepreneur, um, stuff comes at you fast. I like to control what I can. Yeah. So then when stuff does go, you know, haywire, I have like the leeway to make it work. Yeah. Um, so some days they're completely opposite. Some days I have to get up early. I'm on calls all day. Sometimes I have back to back to back meetings, depending on what I'm working on. But I try to control it as much as I can. That first hour that you take to yourself, what are you doing in that time? Thinking. Just thinking? I just sit and think. I try not to be on my phone. Um, I just like enjoy the silence. I actually on Sundays don't use my phone at all anymore. Um, I haven't been as good with it lately because I'm traveling a lot. But when I am home or when I'm in a, you know, I'll, I'll do it this Sunday because I'll be in Park City, Utah with family. Um, I put my phone away Saturday night in a drawer and I don't touch it till Monday morning. Oh, sure. I don't use it for GPS. I don't use it to order <clears throat> food. I don't use it for anything. Um, if someone needs to get a hold of me, they call my girlfriend or they call a friend of mine to get a hold of me. <laughs> they can come to my house. Yeah. And it's one of those things where they say we teach people how we'd like them to treat us. So for the first month or two I did it, I would notify people on Instagram. I could post on my story um, partly because it's the easiest way to reach all my friends at once, but also because I wanted to encourage people to try it themselves. And the first day I did it was Super Bowl Sunday. And I forgot it was a Super Bowl until about eight o'clock that night. I was out on a run and I heard someone shouting at their TV and I was like, oh shit, that's right. It's the Super Bowl today. And it was fantastic. And so I've really detached myself from social media a lot. So that first hour is critical for me, but those Sundays are my days yeah. and it's helped my writing. I was telling someone this recently because when I go on walks or I go on runs, I don't take my phone. I'll go to the gym without headphones. I don't bring my phone anywhere. And so, so you're not listening to hot jams when you're nothing like I'll listen to whatever they're playing over the, the yeah. loudspeakers at the gym, which usually it's usually God awful. Yeah. Um, but I'll go on runs and I'll see, I have a thing for like old Victorian homes. I love old houses and there's a lot of them in my area and I'll see a house and I want to take a photo of it and I don't have my phone on me. So I think to myself, how would I describe this house in five words? Or like I'll see a really cool bird I've never seen before and I'll think the same way. And it's helped me writing because it's helped me get really descriptive with things yeah. um, by not having my phone on those days. And so now I do it <laughs> mentally because I need it, but also because professionally I think it's the right thing for my career. Yeah. That makes a ton of sense. I, for me, I, I if I imagine doing that same thing, the one bit of, I would say, almost anxiety that I'm curious if you run into that I, I would imagine I would is that is the knowing the piling up of... No, because people, people, people will really stop writing on Sundays. I get messages from yeah. friends and they'll say, it'll or like business associates, and they'll say, um, I know I won't hear from you till tomorrow. Yeah because I've taught them that I don't use my phone on Sundays. And it used to be the first couple of weeks I'd turn my phone on Monday and it'd just be ratchets of messages. Now it's like three. Yeah. That's People just don't, they just, they're about to send it and they go, wait, like, Kyle's not on his phone. 
yeah. um, so it's actually become really peaceful and easy yeah. to do now. That's nice. I guess the one tricky part for me is from a client standpoint, like I've got a lot of personal protection dog clients. And if, if there's an emergency or, yeah. or, or something like that. that, like, I, you know, there's, there's an issue with a dog. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll talk to you in 48 hours. They'd Not be like, work. are you fucking serious? Like, you know, so that, that's the one one bad part. So you got to set up a dedicated line that's a flip phone that yeah. only is for yeah. people to call you in dog yeah. emergencies. Yeah, and no you keep shit. a flip it phone. It would get abused. You keep a flip phone in your pocket yeah. and just give it to your dog clients. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a way around it, I'm sure. But but uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting... Once you do it once or twice, you, you crave it. Yeah. They become your days and you look forward to them. Like, I don't sleep in on Sundays. Like, yeah. I'll get up at like 4 a.m. sometimes because I'm excited to, to see shit. what I can do with my day. Like, I woke up at 4 a.m. <laughs> not too long ago I sat on my porch and read a book while the sun came up. I read for about two or three hours. Yeah. Everyone in my house was still down. So I put my book away. I went on an hour long run and I came back. It was probably 8, 8 a.m. And they yeah. were just starting to get up. And I had already, already, already had this incredibly peaceful morning to myself. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's awesome. What, uh, what book was it? I was reading The War of Art. Oh, okay. I've read that book. I read that probably two or three times a year. Oh, really? Yeah, I find it very, very, whenever I want to start a new project, I like refresh myself on yeah, it. That's cool. Um, eating wise, do you subscribe uh, or prescribe to a specific eating regimen or are you just kind of? I experimented a lot doing the 75 hard program. Yeah. Um, and I found that I'm, I'm best on a primarily meat and fruit diet. Um, my energy levels are better. I don't drink as much caffeine. Uh, I tried like the paleo thing, but I was always lightheaded and I was always dizzy. And my primary focus is trying to maximize my creativity in my brain because that's what I enjoy and that's also how I make my money. Yeah. Um, and meat and fruit for me makes me feel stimulated. I'm not, you know, don't have hunger pains. And so that's primarily what I eat is meat, for, meat yeah. and fruit. Yeah. Uh, have you tried like super low carb where it's like you're, you're starving your brain and liver and muscle tissue with glycogen and that fucks your creativity up. Do you know that's kind of like what paleo is super yeah. low carb for me? Cause I was doing meat and it vegetables fucks me up too. And I felt horrible. Yeah. No, like I was always dizzy and I would yeah. stand up and get lightheaded. Yeah. And I didn't think it was the diet. I thought it was something else yeah. until I stopped doing it and realized, Holy shit. Like I feel so much better now. Yeah. I'm, I'm the same way. Like, the, the, you know, I've tried a lot of different, uh, you know, super low carb or, you know, high fat. I mean, I'd fucking pick it. I've tried it and, and agreed. Like I always come back to, a fair bit of meat. I mean, I, I still do eat a fair bit of vegetables, but uh, but enough fruit to to stay in that realm of at least having enough gas in the tank yeah. all the time to, to be able to do whatever the fuck I want to do. Well, it know? helps because I love fruit too. Yeah, no, like, same I fucking here. love bananas. There's yeah. nothing I like more than a banana, and then you spread honey on. That's like yeah. my favorite thing. To me, like a super ripe mango that you cut up and then put in the fridge so it's you cold. You need to move to Miami like, then. Yeah, I mean, I could. There's eat. so many mangoes in my neighborhood. People set up tables. And they just pile their mangoes on it and they attach grocery bags to the front of the table. Jesus. And so when we go on walks, we'll fill up a grocery bag with mangoes no from way. other people's trees. Because different people have different types of mangoes growing. <laughs> like a lot of people grow the red Fuck mangoes me. down there. Um, and you can walk back with like 12 huge mangoes on every walk. I'm going from here to Miami. You then. should. Jesus. Man, that, yeah, it sounds like heaven. I love that shit. I love fruit the same way. But What are the two key components for canine success? That's effective training and proper nutrition. Fueled by Team Dog brings those two components to your family and best friend. The perfect nutritional balance that results in a higher mental acuity, energy, overall vitality, and even an improved appearance. Every product you will find in my company's store was born from the battlefield and not from the boardroom. Let my life's work help you become your dog's hero. Uh, so you're originally from Utah. 
Uh, tell me about uh, kind of growing up uh, on top of what you already have as far as the Mormon experience, your family, and just kind of what, what encapsulated your childhood. I had great parents growing up, um, great relationship with them. They're still very, you know, LDS, and my brothers aren't anymore either, and we all have a fantastic relationship Your with dad them. like the bishop of a... Of he a was in the bishopric when I was in high school, um, but he kind of converted to the church later in his own life, and so he was fairly supportive of me despite me wanting to like, you know, break away from it. But we moved a lot growing up. My dad was a professor at BYU, the Brigham Young University. He had like the full blown varsity Mormon experience. Yeah. Yeah. He was uh, <laughs> he was an art professor. And so I grew up in a very creative household. My dad was usually home illustrating most of the day he worked from home and my mom was uh, an English editor. And so I grew up um, very creative, promoted um, a lot of drawing and writing and stuff like that. And I tell people this often when I was growing up, like when we had to do chores to earn earn money for our allowance, my mom would often give us the option. Do you want to mow the lawn or do you want to read a book? You know, I'll pay $3 for either one. Yeah. And I would always opt to read the book. Yeah. And I, I think back <laughs> now on it, it's a brilliant thing to do. And so, yeah. you know, second, third, fourth grade, I was reading a lot of the classics like The Invisible Man, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I read a lot of Mark Twain. Um, and it was something my mom and I always had as a bond. And then, so growing up, I was around writing a lot. I was around a lot of art, but I didn't really embrace it until college when I was going to school for business. I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to, to do my own thing. So I figured if I got a business degree, I could learn the ins and outs of like accounting, stuff like that. And I realized I was getting A's on all my papers and my professors were complimenting my writing. And so I thought, wow, there's, there's something to this. So then I started asking if I could write for local papers. You know, can I write your music column? You know, I'll go to concerts. Can I write the music column? So they started letting me do that. I was doing it for free. And from there, I got into advertising. And that's kind of really when my career skyrocketed. Um, and that's when I full-blown full knew that all I wanted to do in life was write. Like, I can't imagine doing anything else other than being a writer. Yeah. Did you have siblings growing up? I do. I have an older brother and oh, younger I guess brother. You said, yeah, you said, yeah. yeah, my older brother is a doctor and my younger brother is a journeyman electrician. Okay. And uh, do they live? All my over? younger brother lives in Seattle and my older brother lives back in Utah. Uh, from a, a political standpoint, I mean, you, you seem from the, the musings and writings that I've uh, delved into more on the libertarian side. Do, do they share a similar political stance or? Yeah, I, I grew up, my parents were always Republican. Yeah. Um, especially my dad being... Um, you know, a freelance illustrator is largely how he made his money. He basically worked for himself. Yeah. Um, and he always taught me early on that you want to be your own man. You want to plot your own way in life. You know, you want to find a way to make a living for yourself. And I remember, especially in the Mormon church, a lot of Mormons are fairly Republican. And I wasn't even really aware of what a Democrat or a, a different party was until probably like my, my early teenage years. Yeah. I just kind of assumed everyone <laughs> thought that way. Um, I'd say now I'm very much middle ground. Like I think most people are, I think to conservatives, I seem liberal and to liberals, I seem conservative. Yeah. And I take that as a compliment. Cause it's like, Oh, you mean I'm actually, I'm an independent thinker. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't identify <laughs> with one side. Like, thank you for saying that. And yeah. I think that's where most people do fall. Yeah. They're just afraid to upset either side at times. Like there's times when I'll, I'll post something and, half the people will be very offended and half the people will be very for it. And then a week later I'll post something and it'll completely flip flop. Right. The same people that were for me before are now against me. And that's, that's totally fine with me. Yeah. Is, uh, 
Are, are your brothers similar that way? Yeah, 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 for sure. Same. Um, did you play any sports in high school? You talk about running a lot. I didn't start running until recently. I hated no. running. I started running <laughs> on 75 hard because it sucked. Yeah. I never enjoyed running. And so I told myself when I did that program that I would do something I hated. And so that's when I started running. And now you enjoy it? I enjoy it now because it sucks. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I still don't like it. I rarely get that runner's high people talk of. Yeah. But I like coming back and feeling like, damn, like I, I did it. Yeah. Um, in high school, I played football because I'm a bigger guy. And it was kind of expected of me. Um, I actually had a college scholarship really? for a defensive end at a local state university Shit. and I showed up for training camp. I dislocated my knees twice in high school. I got submarine blocked and I dislocated my knee again the first week of camp. Oh wow. And I got into Percocet and Oxycontin really? and I decided that I liked partying more than football. Oh shit. And so I turned in my pads one day to my coach and I spent probably three semesters just completely fucking off really? um yeah it was the first time i lived away from home i was down in st george utah at dixie state which at the time i was there was like a known party school yeah and i ended up getting really really bad into oxycon i had a lot of buddies that started you know migrating into heroin and i had a buddy that was my roommate overdose and i just saw a lot of other friends lives falling apart and i remember i went I went to a party on a Friday night and I woke up Sunday night in my room and I don't remember anything about Saturday. Wow. And the only reason I knew it was Sunday is because one of my roommates in the house we were living in was still Mormon and he was in his church clothes. I was like, what, what are you doing? He's like, Kyle, it's, it's Sunday night. Like, where, where have you been? I was like, I don't know. Holy shit. Um, and I called my dad that night and I said, dad, I, I, I have a drug problem. Um, I can't be down here anymore. And within 24 hours, my dad was there with his truck and a trailer and we loaded up all my shit and I moved back to Salt Lake and I took a couple months off and I got back in school, I ended up getting, you know, three business degrees in three years. I just really hammered school out and pulled my shit together. Um, but I kind of just replaced, uh, my drug use with alcohol. Um, yeah. <laughs> I spent, I spent a good time drinking my, my fair share. Yeah. Um, but I got through it and I got school done and I got on with my life and I'm glad I did, but yeah, sports for me were something I kind of felt obligated to do just because, I mean, in a small town in Utah, too, like that was kind of the thing. Yeah. yeah going back to the uh, Percocet, Oxycontin use, uh, how, did, how did that start other than the obvious like pain meds for your, your knee or whatever? But w like where did it migrate or when and how did it go from... I'm taking it because I'm fucked up to where I need to take this shit because I it's like it. It's very easy for it to go there. It feels great. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I had Percocet and I had a buddy show me um, that I should snort them instead of swallow them. And that really? was how it happened. Because I was taking them and my buddy's like, you're taking them wrong. And I was like, what do you mean? And I did it the first time and I loved the feeling of it. And at the time I was 19, I couldn't get alcohol. It was very hard to get in Utah unless you had a good fake ID and it was very easy to get prescription pain meds. And so I'd go to parties and I would just take, you know, a little, you know, five or six pills with me and I'd hand them out to friends and we would just take pain pills. And so would you normally snort them or? I would almost always snort them. Yeah. Like well, so I, would, I felt they were a waste if they weren't being snorted. So in terms of the, the feeling that you get to, um, or com comparing the feeling of taking it, swallowing it versus, is it instant with snorting? It's instant, and I started to crave what they call the, dr the drip. When you feel it in the back of your throat, you feel like this numbing sensation that I really got into. 
Really? Um, and yeah, so for a couple of years, that was my thing. My favorite thing to do was to go to the mall on Oxycon. Does I liked socializing when I was like really mellowed out on it. And yeah. so I would go to the mall. I mean, my buddies would just, you know, dumb 19 year olds just walk around high on pills. Yeah. I mean, the only time I've taken Percocet was I, I tore my left tricep. It's been about three and a half years now. And for that, for the few days after the uh, surgery repair, and then um, once I started doing physical therapy, that first few weeks I was doing that, I, I, I took it then too, because it was pretty painful. But but that's my only experience with it. I mean, I'm curious. The I, I will say I never took any of that shit. So I, as a 40-year-old was the first time I had ever taken any opiate-based uh, yeah. pain med. And, and it was the night of my, of I had the surgery in the morning and that night I was like, motherfucker, this thing is killing me. And my parents had come into town to help, help take care of me because I was living by myself at the time. And, and, uh, and, you know, my dad was like, well, they gave you this shit. And I was like, well, fuck it. I'm going to try one. And I took one and like 15 minutes later, it was like this wave of euphoria washed over my entire body. And I was like, holy fucking shit. That stuff is amazing. Yeah, I mean, immediately it's like, I, I get why people have a yeah. really hard time with the shit now. I, I feel very fortunate in that um, even though I have kind of a, an OCD type personality, I, I've not had any issues with being addicted to stuff. Even when I chewed tobacco, like I could quit for months or years at a time, you know, at the drop of a hat and, and really didn't struggle with that. Uh, but I, I will say I've seen enough people have a lot of trouble with it. I'm, I'm curious, like the difference between the euphoria feeling snorting it versus it just hits you quicker and you don't get like that sick to your stomach feeling that some people get. Um, a lot of people don't like prescription medication because it yeah. makes them sick to their stomach. I never dealt with that when I yeah. would snort. Them. Does the, does the euphoria last as long when you snort it? I don't know. I don't think I tried it enough the other way to know, honestly. Um, it was yeah. it was fairly quickly that I got into abusing them. Yeah. Um, I didn't use them correctly long at all. Like as soon as some other members on the team or friends of mine found out I got a prescription for it, uh, it was very quickly like, oh, shit, like, let's, yeah. let's get some of this from him, too. Yeah. So, I mean, how much were you taking a day at, at your worst? Um, it depends on the day. I mean, like if I went out to like a party, it was pretty common that I would I would take you know, two eighties of Oxycontin with me. And I, over the night, over the course of the night, I'd probably snort both of those. Yeah. Um, so which you're not is, snorting a full one at once. No, nah, you do the full one at once. So it'll just kick your ass. Yeah. Um, and that's still pretty fucked up though. Yeah. Um, but there were nights, I mean, that night that I, that I forgot a day and a half, I don't even know what I ingested. I remember taking a, I had swallowed a bunch of Suboxone which is another kind of prescription pain pill they actually give you to help you get off them. Oh, okay. Um, which is just like a lower dose. Yeah. It's just, it's just a completely fucked racket. So, yeah. wow. I don't, I don't know what like my limit or, or, uh, casual use was, but it was as often as I could get a hold of it, I was using it. Yeah. Um, my, my bigger issue later in life was, was how much I started drinking. Um, oh, okay. That became like an everyday thing for me for quite a while. Yeah. What was the, when, when you called your dad and you went back home, where, where, was there that like textbook withdrawal issue where you were like all fucked up and, and it was hard to come, come off of that? Stuff? Yeah. I mean, I had like the sweats and stuff and I felt really anxious and irritable and I just kind of stayed in the room and it probably took me a, a week or two until I stopped having like headaches. Yeah. Um, but I was pretty motivated at that time to stop using them. And I haven't ever used a prescription pain pill since. Yeah. Um, I actually got a chemical burn really bad on my hand about six, seven years ago. And the doctor wanted me on pain medication. I said, not, not going to happen. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll deal with it. Um, I don't even take ibuprofen. Oh, wow. um, I haven't taken any kind of ibuprofen, Tylenol 
in probably over 15 years. Yeah. Wow. So that transfers into, into booze. Was it quickly thereafter? Yeah, but it was more or less a social thing. I think I'd gotten so used to the social lubricant of opiates, um, going to parties, being like that euphoria you feel that it became very easy to just replace that with the social aspect of alcohol. And then I didn't think I had a problem with it until I just realized that I was, I wasn't using it out of physical dependency, but mental dependency. I just become so accustomed to drinking, especially with my career. Um, as I got in advertising, I got into a lot of hospitality consulting. I was working on bars and hotels as a creative director and I had a very successful career. I was living in New York city and I ran an, you know, an office of about 15 employees, all creatives. And I worked on some large scale projects in New York, but drinking was not only something I did cause I enjoyed it, but it was more or less like almost a brand I'd created for myself where clients would want to work with me cause they knew like after the project was done, we could go to the strip club and party. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they knew that I would still show up at 8am and I wouldn't miss my meeting and I would get my job done. And so I prided myself on the fact that I was high functioning, um, even though I drank a lot. Yeah. And in 2019, when I had like that real mental kind of breakdown and was just in the pits of life is when I told myself, <clears> like, I, I need some clear thinking in my life. I need to move away from this, this brand I've created for myself. And that was the first time I'd ever been sober for more than a week in probably, you know, seven or eight years. But I went 100 days totally sober. And now, like, I rarely drink at all, yeah. um, partially because 75 hard. And now with my son and where my career is and the productivity that I realized I have without it, um, it's hard for me to justify wanting to be hung over. Yeah. Like I don't mind, I don't mind being drunk, but being hung over to me, is like the worst thing in the world. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I, I almost never drink. I couldn't tell you the last time I had one. I, I've never been much of a drinker though. I mean, I was having this conversation with my kids, uh, uncomfortably the other day, actually they're, you know, cause they're, they're that age and asking me, you know, Hey, did you do anything in high school? And I'm like, I'm not going to bullshit them. You know, I'm not going to condone, condone or allow them to do it, but I'm still going to, you know, level with them. It was like I drank twice in high school. I tried smoking weed once, and it was like not even weed. It was like fucking oregano or catnip or something yeah. stupid that a, a neighbor neighbor kid was fucking playing a joke or, you know, whatever. But uh, but that was it, you know, and then I didn't drink. I didn't actually drink drink until I was 21, even being in the Navy. I, I just never really messed with it with very, very rare exceptions. And uh, and even when I was 21, like I did the, the 21 experience for two, maybe three months, you know, uh, but I was in a SEAL platoon like living in Coronado, training hard, partying hard. Mm -hmm. And even then, like I still, you know, I drank a few nights a week or whatever, but, but that was it. And then even from then, at, you know, from being 22 until now in my, my early forties, like I've just never been a big drinker, you know, it just never has really done much for me for that reason. It's like, whether it's working out or, or just trying to get shit done or whatever, like it's just a hurdle that gets in the way and, and ends up being not, you know, the juice isn't worth the squeeze, that little bit of fun, mm -hmm time isn't worth, you know, being dehydrated and feeling like shit the next day and, and me not being able to do what I need to do. And it, yeah, it just, it fucks me up and I've never been a huge fan of it, but I wish that I had the drive I have now, you know, five, six years ago, but it's definitely yeah. something that comes with age Yeah, because I was very content living in a high rise in New York city, making a good salary. I was traveling often to meet with clients around the, you know, around the country for hotels and bars. Um, and being hung over is just like, it's just part of my job. Yeah. And I would just wake up, I'd have like a Bloody Mary in the morning, I'd get rid of my, my hangover, a little bit of a buzz, and I was functioning very well. And at that time, I'd still had, you know, four successful book launches. 
And I just kind of figured it was, you know, just what it took for me to be creative or what it took for me to kind of enjoy my life. I was single. And um, if I had had the drive I have now and didn't spend so much time fucking off, yeah, I'd be so much farther in my career. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, I don't regret any of it. Yeah. Um, I'm fortunate in the sense that, I mean, I never got a DUI. I never had anything serious happen to me. Um, I had a lot of friends that have caused a lot of harm in their life and I've never hurt anyone else. And so I kind of feel like I was given my little get out of jail free card <clears throat> because I had a lot of fun and nothing really serious happened from it. Yeah. No, I mean, that's uh, I, I agree. And like, there's things that I think people look back on and they have regrets or they wish they hadn't done this. And I'm like, nothing falls into that category for me because I, I love where I'm at now. And a lot of the things that I, I care about or that are important or that I have learned are only a result of some of the things that have happened in the past. And, and I wouldn't have those experiences had I, you know, done everything differently. So when well, I had this thought earlier, when you talk, brought the matrix about, you know, would you have done that if I hadn't said something? And I have that mindset in a lot of my life, you know, would I be where I'm at now if I hadn't done what I've done? Yeah. It's hard um, to would I have written that book had I not experienced what I've experienced? And so it helps me give purpose to everything and it's eliminated almost all regret in my life. Yeah. Like I still have moments where you regret things. Everyone does. Um, but it's very short lived for me once I give it purpose like that. And I realize that all of it's part of the story, all of it can become inspiration for me to talk to others. It can be some, become something I write about. And once I have that outlook, like you don't regret even your dumbest shit. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, and to me that, that, that perspective is the key to, to ultimately to happiness, because to me, that's where you derive purpose from, you mm -hmm. know? And so uh, I think it's massively important. Um, and as far as the ad campaign stuff, how would you kind of, uh, or, or, you know, I don't know what you call it, an ad executive or what, what would you, what would you, I was a copywriter. I started okay. as a copywriter. I eventually became a senior copywriter, then a creative director. Yeah. And so I basically ran the whole creative team. So how, how would you synopsize that as a career and what you took from it before we get into your transition into what you do now? I learned how to almost turn my creativity on in advertising because it became a job where I couldn't, I couldn't afford days of not being creative. Um, I think a lot of people wait for a creative inspiration to hit them, but I learned that creative inspiration had to be something I had to tap into. And I needed it when I needed it at the time. Like there's deadlines, there's timelines, like I needed the creativity. And so it taught me how to, <clears throat> unlock um, conceptual thinking um, to where I can look at, you know, a lamp in a, in a, in a diner and think, okay, how could that lamp be related to uh, dating? Okay. Now if I had a client who was trying to sell that, <laughs> if I had a client who was trying to sell that lamp, how do I make a funny commercial comparing buying a lamp to finding the perfect date? Cause now that commercial is going to be memorable yeah. and it's relatable to them because everyone dates at some point and that level of thinking or that ability to create a concept, I learned through advertising. And that became very reflected in my work. Yeah. Um, a lot of my work is written that way, where I take concepts and I find a way to make them relatable um, to, to you in your everyday life. So, I mean, to me, it's very akin to stand-up comedy. Absolutely. Way, you know? um, the, best, the best advertising should appear almost like stand-up comedy. It should yeah. have a little bit of storytelling aspect to it, yeah. and it should be either very personal or, or funny enough that it's memorable. Yeah. So for those categories, I mean, using the example of a lamp and dating, did you find that there were a handful of categories, dating, driving a car, I mean, whatever it is, that, that you kind of 
that were your gold standards or that you you found yourself going to often to relate yeah dating for sure because i was in my 20s when i was doing a lot of it and so it was something i was experiencing myself and so i felt like i had a good knowledge of because you know every day it was kind of my 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 thought process is how do i meet somebody or how do i get laid kind of thing which (laughs) a lot of 20 year olds go through and so um it was easy to pull it into my work because it was relatable to me um so definitely dating is is where a lot of my work was early on and then it overall transitioned into more or less you know socializing because i figured socializing was like a broader perspective i could take on things um and then from there it kind of really i took kind of a complete flip with my work and started making it really personal in the sense of you know either personal empowerment encouraging free thought encouraging people to be themselves and a lot of that individuality and independence is where most of my work is today and it's also where most of the creative concepts i do now are about that kind of realm because i think now more than ever too it's very pertinent to people Um, people feel like they've been shoveled into a bunch of different categories now and so anything you can do to encourage someone to be independent and be themselves they tend to gravitate towards yeah I mean, it's, it's fascinating. I'm, I'm curious in, in trying to put myself in, in that position. I can only assume or imagine that there are instances where you get that kind of writer's block or, or yeah. what have you. When when there's the, the added stress and pressure of this is what I do for a living and uh-huh. there's a timeline or a deadline or whatever, were there um, tips, tricks, you know, mechanisms that you – relied on to to work through that or how how did you navigate those times getting active um even when i was at the height of you know being fairly unhealthy with my lifestyle i still did a lot of cardio um i had a gym in my building in new york and i i have never had a writer's block that i haven't been able to get through by doing extended amounts of cardio really um some of my best tweets or my best little snippets of work i have actually tweeted while i was in the gym during yeah like i'll be i'll be running or i'll be on the elliptical or on the bike and it'll just hit me and i'll be like sure. oh shit that's a great concept and i'll tweet <laughs> it immediately um wow. that's always helped me um but like you're saying when so to kind of backtrack and talk about my career progression it's helpful at this point um when i got into advertising and i was writing these concepts for commercials i remember i had written a commercial for a furniture company comparing buying a coffee table to looking for the ideal mate um saying you know you don't want someone who's too tall or too short you know in the end you want a coffee table that's stable and that looks good and that's kind of very similar dating you want someone (laughs) stable looks good that fits into your life fits into your your aesthetic and i thought the commercial was funny i thought it was brilliant and they thought it'd be seen as a something derogatory or um shaming of people's appearance and stuff like that and of course they did I remember thinking, this is too good of a concept to let it die. I'm going to tweet this. Yeah. And so I took that and I you know, tweaked it into a little tweet format. And I tweeted it and it did pretty well. And I started, as I was working on campaigns, I would take my A content and I would keep it for myself. And I would tweet it because <laughs> I figured a client wouldn't appreciate it. And I'd give yeah. them all my B and C content. Yeah. And that's how my whole social media following started. Oh. Um, and I kept it very separated as the captain online because I didn't want it to influence my career. Um, I'd had a very difficult time getting into advertising <clears> in the first place. I was told that I couldn't work in the in the realm because I had my fingers tattooed. I was like verbatim told that by someone like, you're a fantastic writer, but we can't hire you because you have finger tattoos. And so I was very protective of my career. I was afraid to lose it. I was excited and I was very um, 
happy to be making money as a writer because um, you get paid pretty well as a copywriter in advertising because it's it's basically the linchpin of all of all concepts come from the writing first and so I didn't want to fuck up something good for myself I had an apartment I had a truck and I was getting paid to write so I kept it separated online and then eventually I was at a meeting one time in New York and I remember it very vividly I was sitting across from some asset managers of a, a Ritz Carlton property which was a hotel I was working on rebranding for them and older gentleman leans over to me and says you know my wife and I we love your stuff I was like, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, you're Instagram. He's like, I follow you. <laughs> and uh, that was the first time my worlds had really collided like yeah. that. And then I realized that a lot of people wanted to work with me because of my online persona, because I was willing to take risks with my own life and with my creativity. And that's when I started to kind of embrace it, and not hide it so much. And that's where I'm at now where, you know, I actually have my real name on my Instagram for until 2019. I didn't. Uh, people would search high and low trying to figure out who the fuck I was. Um, I didn't, I never really had personal social media before that. And so it was very easy for me to hide who I was. And now it's the opposite where I, I'm, I'm proud of my background. I'm, I used to, you know, not like talking about that. I was raised Mormon. Um, but yeah, it really all kind of changed for me in 2019. And now my world's all just kind of mixed together. Yeah. That's fucking wild. The, uh, I'm curious how, how did you internally, compartmentalize a b and c content like what what process did you go through to say this is a content i'm keeping if this. i laugh at it it's a content <laughs> <laughs> if it makes me laugh it's a content yeah. <laughs> if it makes me think someone else will laugh it's b content yeah. if i think it'll make someone simply think it's c content yeah that's fucking classic that's <laughs> it's like scientific. sometimes when you think of a joke to yourself and you laugh you yeah. know it's fucking good yeah. <laughs> you'll see stand-up comedians oh, do that great. where they'll yeah. say jokes so good they can't help but laugh at their own joke yeah i like seeing comedians laugh at their own jokes yeah yeah, no shit. Well, yeah, I mean, you know it. You know it's good. Then that's for sure. Do you have a favorite stand-up comic other than Dane Cook? Oh, I fucking hate <laughs> that guy. Um, Dave Chappelle. Yeah, I respect Dave Chappelle a lot. Not only for his stand-up comedy, but also because I think he's a pioneer of a lot of current comedy style. I mean, the yeah. Chappelle Show really created a whole different category of of sketch comedy. But also, I admire him as a person because you've seen time and time again he's willing to stand up for himself. Yeah. And he's willing to have hard conversations. And I like that he can also talk very sincerely and then make you laugh. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think very few individuals can do that. And so I'd say by far he's who I respect more than anyone yeah. in, the, in that comedy world. Yeah. No, it's tough to argue. I mean, there's a handful that stick out. George Carlin is one of my favorites, you know, both pioneer wise. And I, I think he was way ahead of well, his, and his time. stuff is so relevant today. Yeah. I have not yeah. seen more Carlin stuff reposted. Yeah, it's crazy. The last two years it's everywhere. And it was something that, um, someone could have done a week ago yeah, it's and it's timeless. still relevant. Yeah. And that's the kind of writing that I try and do as well. And that's why, you know, I talking about earlier, Mark Twain, um, he's probably my favorite writer as yeah. far as we're talking about traditional authors, because the stuff Twain addressed in his books, um, he wrote about human conditions that he knew were always going to be human conditions. Yeah. And you can read his work now and you can, you know, read some of his short quotes and his, uh, his analogies of life. And they're as meaningful now as they were, you know, a hundred years ago. Yeah. To me, it's fascinating. Uh, speaking of that kind of timeless of reading shit back from, uh, you know, whether it's philosophers back, you know, 2000 years ago and, and everywhere in between, like how, how so much of that is still, Similarly, other than some strange um, 
translation, you know, glitches. Yeah, there's a big stoicism movement right now. Yeah, you see mean, a lot of stoicism on uh, the past, you know, probably three to four years yeah. because it's timeless. Yeah, I and mean, it almost makes you, as a writer, feel well. Shit, everyone's already thought of everything <laughs> yeah, before. Yeah. Um, I had this conversation with someone recently too, where you know, why should I write if people have already written about this stuff? Yeah, um, because your words are your words, and you might articulate it in a way that hits people that their words didn't, yeah. and. I think that's why um, early on, most writers just want to be original. Like yeah. They try really hard to be original. Um, and originality isn't always the best work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then eventually you get to a point as a writer where you just want to write well. And you want to write stuff that's meaningful. And a lot of the meaningful stuff, other people have also arrived at that conclusion before. Like long, sustained periods of thought are going to lead a lot of humans to a very similar idea of life. Yeah. And that's the kind of stuff that people need to write about. Yeah. I think that's one of those things where simplicity is key too, where it seems obvious when people are trying too hard to be original and they overcomplicate everything. And you see comedians do that shit too. And your originality might just be fucking really awful too. Yeah. Like you, like (laughs) you, you need to, in order to connect with someone, you almost have to hit them on a level they've been at before. Yeah. And that's why, you know, the jokes that everyone remembers the most or laughs at the most are the ones that are personal to them. Sure. And you can't arrive at a personal thought or you can't create a personal joke without having something that someone's already done. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's, that's if, if I had to give advice to new writers, because I'm asked that often, um, it's focused more on writing well than being wholly original. Yeah, that's, I think that's great. Um, going back to 2019 where you had this uh, kind of mental health uh, instance, can you uh, talk about that? Oh, we can definitely talk about it. Um, what happened? Um, <clears throat> or or where, I guess where did you realize like, holy fuck, like the, the cards are, are caving in or, or what? <clears throat> so I'd gotten burned out in New York. Um, I quit my agency there. Um, I didn't feel like, you know, advertising was, was my love anymore. Like you said, it became too much of a job for me and it made me despise my personal work as well. Um, I didn't want to write at all. I didn't feel any need to create. I was just completely burned out from, you know, burning the candle on both ends for so long. And I was over New York city. Um, I thought I wanted that city life, you know, growing up in Utah. Um, we all kind of rebel against our youth. And to me, moving to New York was like the ultimate example of success. I mean, I came from this small town in Utah. I grew up in Pleasant Grove and Mapleton, Utah, which are little towns. Where are they in relation to Salt Lake? Um, about an hour south. Okay. Pleasant Grove is probably 40 minutes. Mapleton's about an hour. Um, when I lived in Mapleton, we had, I think, two buildings. Uh, one building was the rec center slash fire department, and the other <laughs> building was a pizza shop slash police office. That's Okay. And we had to go into Springville or we had to go into Spanish Fork, Utah to get anything. So I grew up, you know, I would ride my bike to the reservoir with my pellet gun over one shoulder, my fishing pole over the other. And I loved it. It was a great way to grow up. And so when I got older, I wanted to live in the city. I wanted to experience a different side of life. And I'm glad I did. I think everyone should live in a big city once or twice in their life because it helps you realize that it's not the answer. <laughs> um, <laughs> I still love New York. Uh, not so much anymore. I was back two months ago. It's not the same. Yeah. But I'd gotten burned out living in New York and I'd been doing a long distance thing with my girlfriend at the time. Um, same girlfriend I have now who I have the son with. And <clears throat> she was living in LA and I was actually looking at moving to Austin, Texas. I was like, I want to move to Texas. I want my boots. haven't touched anything other than concrete for 
too long. And, um, she made it very apparent that if I moved to Texas, she was kind of over the long distance thing. And I had some opportunities writing in TV and I knew some people out there that could probably get me into some TV stuff. So I moved to LA and immediately hated it, regretted it. Um, I did not connect with LA and I had a really hard time trying to make sense of the decisions I'd made. Um, I felt like I'd fucked up walking away from a career. Um, I missed New York. I missed um, feeling like I was a part of something and my career wasn't panning out in LA the way I'd hoped. And I just started spiraling into just like a deep state of depression. And it was something that I kind of always had on the surface for years, but because I was traveling so much and I was so busy with work, I ignored um, the depression that I was dealing with. Um, Off and on, I'd have periods of time where I, I wouldn't leave my apartment for two or three days. I would stay in my apartment in New York and just wallow in my shit um, in between travels. And it just became so apparent in LA, I couldn't run from it anymore. I didn't have my job to keep me busy. I didn't have any prospects to distract myself. And I started getting to the point where I was ruminating on ending it. And we all at times have had that. And I think we get to points where we almost romanticize the idea of it. But it was to the point that I was actually scaring myself um, because it was no longer like, you know, romanticizing it. I was actually, you know, how would I do it? Where would I do it? When would I do it? Planning it. And I'd never been that dark before. And my girlfriend started noticing it and it weighed heavily on her. And we had several conversations about it. And there was times that she told me she was afraid to go to bed because she thought if she fell asleep, I was going to do it that night because she could tell I was in a really bad headspace. And oddly enough, out of the blue, I got a book deal through a major publisher and I thought, okay, cool. This is going to be what pulls me out. And it was the first major book deal I'd ever had. And I didn't feel anything from it. I wasn't excited, nothing. It was completely numb. And so I kind of just forgot about that as quickly as it came. I signed the papers, but it was just like outside, out of mind. And then I realized that I really was in a place that, If I didn't do some work, some personal work, it was going to get worse. And my girlfriend broke up with me because she was tired of the weight around her shoulder. And that was like the final straw for me to be like, okay, there's nothing for me in LA now. There's nothing for me in California. And I decided I had to do everything the exact opposite up to that point. And so that's when I decided to go sober. And that's when I decided to move back to Utah for a bit and... I decided to finally open myself up to talking to a therapist. For the longest time, I didn't want to talk to a therapist because as a writer, I thought a therapist would take all my good ideas from me. (laughs) Um, I was like, I can't talk to you because these are like, I need to write about these instead. Um, And I told the therapist that. I was like, I'm afraid if I talk to you, I'm going to lose my creativity because I need to ruminate on things in order to make them funny. Um, So I opened myself up to therapy. I opened myself up to books that I otherwise never would have read. Um, a lot of like spiritual Totec wisdom, wisdom books, like, uh, the four agreements, stuff like that. And after like three or four months, I, f- I felt good. I felt like I'd pulled out of it. I moved back to LA and then, uh, COVID hit and I was like, well, shit, fuck. Now I'm in like the worst <laughs> place ever for this to deal to yeah. deal with this. I had just gotten my dog and I just spiraled right back down again. Um, and then I found out I was going to be a dad. 
And then I was like, man, I am not in a headspace for any of this right now. So it was totally unplanned. Yeah, it all happened so quickly. And it was having my son that finally got me together enough to realize if I don't get my shit together, I'm not going to be there for this kid. And it's going to get much worse for him, my girlfriend, and myself if I don't get my shit together. And I'd heard friends talk about 75 Hard. I'd heard friends talk about Annie Frisella. I'd seen his stuff online. I didn't know who he was really. Um, but him and I randomly just started talking online. And I was like, this is so odd. It's like one of those things I tell you about reconnectiveness. Yeah. Kind of, you know, I, I had just been thinking about his stuff and he started reposting my quotes and we started talking on DMs. And I was like, I think I need this regimen. I think if I do this regimen, it's going to force me to pull my shit together. And so really, you know, I talked about this recently on his podcast. I tried that out of straight desperation. Um, and the routine of it is what helped me get my shit together. And I'm more productive than ever. I feel my writing's better than ever. I'm genuinely for the first time content with where my life's at. Um, not to say that I'm not going to keep pursuing and doing more and more, but I don't wallow in my shit like I used to. And it's like I said earlier, I used to be so opposed to routine, but I attribute a lot of that to the routine and also just being open to new things. Like I was not open to the talk of spirituality until 2019. I was not open to the talk of anything God related. I thought it was fucking stupid. And I thought you were a Neanderthal if you believed there was a God above us. I thought it was like such a low level of thinking. Yeah. Um, so I opened myself up to everything. And that's when life just kind of opened up for me as far as um, opportunities come at me quicker than I can, you know, keep a track of them now. Yeah. And it really just all came from choosing to do the opposite of what I was doing. Yeah. Do you, do you find that with uh, this influx of opportunity that you actually find it difficult to decide which ones to do? No, you don't. No, no. I just do the ones that feel right to me. Yeah. Um, I saw a documentary with Dr. Dre. I can't remember what it's called. And it was on HBO. It was a really good four part series. And he said, if I don't like the vibe of someone, I don't work with them. I don't do the project. And I was like, there's something to that because in many times in my life, especially in advertising, I've taken on projects with people I didn't like and they've always been awful. Yeah. Um, so now it's like, if I like it, if it feels right to me, um, I just got to go for it. Well, it's humbling that you're sitting on this fucking couch then. This is that. one of those things I'm probably going to regret. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I've done my job if you regret sitting there. No, uh, that, I mean, to me, that that's uh, it's refreshing and it's also very rare. You know, I mean, most people... Uh, I think, you know, anybody, even with the purest of, of ideology in that regard, probably still finds themselves, I don't, I don't know that I'd say compromising, but maybe it's like if the if the upside is big enough on certain things, you're like, yeah, I could probably swing that. Or, I think, you know, but I think the fear is too. people fear if they don't take everything, they're going to lose out. Yeah. Um, and I had that fear for sure, where sure. I feel like I had to I had to take on all my work. Yeah. But I realized that when I do that, the work I really enjoy doing suffers. Yeah. And so I'm better off doing fewer things really fucking well yeah. than half-assing like six things at a time. Yeah. And the things that appeal to me are the things I will do well because I'll sink myself into yeah, them. And you're passionate about it. And it's, it's the long game. Mm -hmm. um, it's, yeah, there's stuff that comes to me with like money attached to it that I could make a lot of money pretty quickly. Um, I get offered to ghostwrite a lot of books for executives and business people and I haven't said yes to any of those because it's like, no, the long game is I need to write another book of my own that I'm going to enjoy writing mm -hmm. and I won't make that quick paycheck, but 
in the end, it's going to be something I'm really proud of. And the hope is that after, you know, two or three years of sustained sales through that book, it'll yeah. outpace whatever they would have paid me. Sure. Plus, I would have enjoyed the process. And yeah. so that's something that came from being a dad for me is that long-term thinking. I didn't have that at all yeah. until I started thinking about, you know, what I want to leave behind. Um, I started watching Yellowstone, realizing I really want to be a Dutton. And <laughs> <laughs> I still, that's another one of those things I still haven't watched. It's that, yeah. See, that's, that's the one show where the hype it, it is, yeah. it lives up to Have it. you watched Game of Thrones? I've watched it off and on, dude. I mean, I was um, like, I was, I was anti Game of Thrones for the longest time because everybody was so fucking high. Yeah. on I was like, dude, I, I refuse to watch it because so many people watch. I it. have the box set. Someone dude, gave me the box set good, as a man. gift, dude. It is good. And I've popped in like two of the DVDs, I think. And I'll admit, incredibly well done. Yeah. I mean, um, I'm fearful of getting into something that takes that time away from me, though, because yeah. it does seem intriguing enough that i'll binge it and i'll lose a lot of productivity to me it's, it's worth it <laughs> yeah I, I really think it's worth it because i'm the same way like i don't watch a ton of tv and and i'm very particular about the shit that i'll i'll, I'll say waste my time watching because yeah. i do think it's largely a waste of time but yeah, I, I think there are times where you need mindless turn your brain off oh, and, yeah, let, and sure. let somebody else entertain you yeah 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 and stop fucking thinking and i, and I think but to that like i don't want to like, I'm not going to watch fucking Beavis and Butthead. No. Like, as funny and dumb as it is, like, when I was a teenager, like, uh, you know. Oh, I watch I watch a lot of movies. Yeah. Like, I, I love watching movies. I yeah. just find a lot of the new ones suck. Yeah, for they sure. They don't make movies like they used to. They're no. not making Gladiators anymore. No. They're not making Matrix. They're not yeah. making Seven. They're it's not terrible. making that kind of stuff. They're not even anymore. making funny shit anymore. I mean, even, like, like the 80s Rat Pack shit or, or like, you know, Breakfast Club and... 16 candles and ferris bueller's day out like yeah. shit like that the john hughes you know half comedy half relatable high school experience stuff now it's all like it's so politically sensitive and, and correct and and uh you know just all of that taking into account you know every every dynamic and every you know checking every fucking box of every category that you can imagine that just ruins fucking I think the everything. problem with comedy too those intention spans have changed yeah Thank, um, thanks to a cell phone you, you know? can't set up the jokes they used to do in old movies because yeah. no one wants to wait 15 minutes to get there they want yeah. to watch a 15 second clip yeah and you'll see that i always point this out to people when you watch an older movie how they do like the really slow build yeah and they have to do like everyone that was involved and now it's almost always a fucking flashback yeah it always the, the movie always starts with something really intense and it's like, okay, now let's show you how we got there. But they have to immediately start with something in movies now because we, yeah. we don't have the patience. For it I think it started with Vines. I think Vines is the, uh, is the, cat the downfall of, the, of, of humanity, really. Yeah, I could see that. You know, because it, like, it, it turned I never every, got into Vine. I never yeah, had a same Vine here. account. But, but that, I think, you know, it's, what was it, seven seconds, I think? Yeah. Because it's, you know, like that's, that's the window of opportunity. It's changed have, comedy you know? completely. Yeah, it's changed like, everything. The long storytelling style of uh, stand-up yeah. You still see comics do it, but it's not nearly as um, as much uh, thought as it used to be because they have to start rapid-firing jokes because they're also looking to get snippets and clips yeah. so they can get promoted on social media because they want stuff that people will record and repost for them and yeah. share. And it's changed movies. It's changed writing. Yeah. Um, it's changed a lot <clears throat> of the creative world. And you know, with, with musicians in particular – 
it used to be where your favorite band would put out an album every like three years. Yeah. And it would be 13 songs that were fucking solid. Yeah. And now because it's so easy to produce and release, you got people putting out two or three albums in a year. Yeah. And they'll have like 21 fucking tracks on it because <laughs> yeah. they can't make up their mind. And it's all computer generated. Yeah. Bullshit. And they'll just say, oh, I'll just, I'll, I'll just do another album for this. And yeah. creators, um, just a pace at which they feel they have to create now. And that's something I've gotten better at too, where I used to feel like I had to tweet every day or post every day. And now like I won't post for like two or three weeks at a time. Yeah. Um, it's made me more productive on, on the back end of things. When I'm not on social media, I'm actually working on real things like books or yeah. scripts for uh, projects. Um, creators really need to learn to, uh, to be patient with their craft. Yeah. I, I uh, similarly, like I, I don't post a lot on, on any platforms. I mean, I have a, uh, you know, a social media manager that does most of it anyway, but even with that, like I, I purposely don't give them very much content because I don't want shit going out every day or five mm -hmm. fucking times a day. And people you know, do six podcasts reels every day. That's, that's it's crazy. It's insane. maddening. Insane. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I average one a week, uh, you know, in, in terms of the release, but I'll usually do, you know, a, a couple in a, in a week. Mm -hmm. And then not do shit for the rest yeah. of the month, you know. Um, Go race your cars. Yeah, fucking A. We're going to take a quick pause to get a shout out from our sponsor. You know, m music is a big, uh, big inspiration and a big part of my life. I listen to it all the time, whether I'm driving, riding a motorcycle, working out, walking, uh, what have you. And one of the things that, uh, you know, frustrates me regularly is getting a good pair of, you know, headphones that, that have a high quality sound that are easy to use, um, you know, but that don't cost a fortune. Um, I've recently partnered with, uh, with Raycon and, uh, I really, really like these, these wireless headphones They're Bluetooth, uh, they're everyday earbuds. They look, feel, and sound better than ever. Uh, and they're half the price or even less than a lot of, uh, other brands that, uh, that are popular out there. So, um, I've been using them now for a couple of weeks. The <clears throat> battery life is really good at, uh, has 32 hours of standby time and, and eight hours of play time, which I have tested, um, you know, I've used them all day long basically and, and not had to re recharge and they come in a rechargeable case. They don't take long to charge to begin with. Uh, and they, they sound great. They're super comfortable uh, and they're just really good. And uh, I want to extend this uh, call to action for you guys. Mic drop listeners can get 15% off of the Raycon order uh, at buyraycon.com slash mic drop. That's buyraycon.com slash mic drop, and you save 15% on an already uh, very reasonably priced uh, set of wireless earphones. That's buyraycon.com slash mic drop. All right, I want to talk about a product that is uh, near and dear to my heart. It's Bub's Naturals. Glenn Doherty was uh, one of my closest friends, was tragically killed in Benghazi um, back during that uh, incursion. Uh, two good friends of his, uh, Sean and, and TJ, came together and wanted to design a, a brand around Glenn that both supports the Glenn Doherty Memorial Foundation, which it does very well, as well as put out a really good product for collagen protein and MCT oil powder. Uh, so they, they came up with Bubs Naturals. It's a brand that I've taken for years. I stand behind a thousand percent, uh, and it's a product that I'm very, very proud and honored to have as a sponsor of this podcast because of where it comes from, who it benefits, and ultimately uh, has the name of, of, you know, one of the best men I've ever had the pleasure of, of knowing and operating with. 
Um, the college protein, I, I will say, is the best collagen on the planet. It's better than everything else. Uh, it's unflavored. Uh, it's very soluble, and, and it is better than any other product. Uh, per serving, it's 20 grams of protein, seven essential amino acids, and it's one single ingredient, which is collagen. Uh, it is essential for joint health, muscle recovery, gut health, and more. It is 100% NSF, four sport certified. It's Whole30 approved, sustainably sourced. Collagen protein really is the key to performance and keeping your joints healthy. Uh, you can train better, longer, and smarter with it. It is the purest form of collagen. Uh, again, it's sustainably sourced from grass-fed and pasture-raised cows in southern Brazil. It's keto and paleo diet approved, heat tolerant, and you can put it in anything. Uh, the MCT oil powder, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing for coffee creamer. Uh, it's vegan and keto friendly. Uh, it's great for mental focus and energy and just good healthy fat. Uh, and Bubs is the only MCT in the world that is Whole30 approved. If you go to BubsNaturals.com and use the promo code MikeDrop, all one word, all caps, for 20% off, that's 20%. That's one-fifth for you math majors. Again, I, I cannot stress enough um, how honored I am to have Bubs Naturals as a sponsor of the Mic Drop podcast. Uh, Glenn was was an amazing human being, and the two gentlemen, Sean and TJ, that uh, you know have, have taken up his um, you know name in in honor of of what he did and brought to this planet uh, in in bringing that same level of of uh, you know just an amazing human being to to their product is something that. Uh, I'll be forever grateful for. So go to uh, bubsnaturals.com, use the promo code MikeDrop for 20% off. We love GhostBed. They have super comfortable mattresses that last forever, and they're made in the USA. Every mattress has a 20-year warranty, some even have 25, and you can try it out for 101 nights. If you don't like it, you can send it back. No hard feelings. One of our favorite parts about GhostBed is that each mattress has cooling technology in it, so if you get hot at night like, say, I do here in Texas, these things are a lifesaver. GhostBed also offers bundles so you can get everything you need. You don't even have to really think about it. Just choose from their four mattresses and then pick your bundle. So whether you just need a mattress and frame or you want it all, like their cooling pillows and sheets, you can get the best bang for your buck. Right now, GhostBed is offering 40% off GhostBed bundles where you get a mattress and adjustable base or 30% off everything if you use the code MikeDrop at ghostbed.com forward slash MikeDrop. You can buy a mattress for like 35 bucks a month. They have zero down, 0% financing plan for up to 60 months. Go check it out at ghostbed.com forward slash MikeDrop. Do you have an RV or a camper? You should check out GhostBed's RV mattress. You can get the all-foam or hybrid version, and it's perfectly sized to fit your RV, camper, or trailer. It's way better than what you're sleeping on now with exclusive cooling technology to keep you nice and cool throughout the night. Right now, you can get 30% off the RV mattress by using code MikeDrop. As you guys know, I uh, focus on health and uh, fitness. And one of the main components of uh, keeping up with health and fitness is proper supplementation. Uh, you know, when I'm on the go, if I don't have time to, to make a, a real food meal, uh, I really like this new uh, couple of products from Equip Foods, <clears throat> Prime Protein. Uh, it comes in chocolate, vanilla, strawberry. It's a grass-fed beef isolate protein. 
It provides uh, complete protein. One scoop of it is equivalent to four ounces of grass-fed beef, uh, which means that it's also far less likely to cause gastrointestinal problems. Uh, it, it also contains collagen and gelatin that helps repair your joints and soft tissues the way plant protein, in fact, will not. Um, it's most often used as a meal replacement uh, post-workout, uh, or you can even throw it in uh, baked goods like pancakes or muffins or you know things of that nature. Um, on the same vein of, of collagen is they also have a complete collagen product. Uh, it's just made with one ingredient, and that's 100% grass-fed bovine collagen. Uh, each scoop provides 15 grams of collagen as well as 15 grams of protein. Uh, and there's a number of clinical studies that show that collagen actually improves the health of your joints, gut lining, connective tissues, and your skin. Uh, most people, myself included, will use uh, a scoop of that collagen protein with their morning coffee uh, or in a smoothie uh, or any type of breakfast item drink-wise. Um, the second most common is to add a scoop of that uh, collagen uh, protein product to the, the prime protein post-workout shake to double down on uh, both protein and collagen. So uh, equipfoods.com forward slash mic drop all caps uh, and that code again is mic drop for 20% off your entire order at equipfoods.com. All right, let's get back into it. You know, to me, b back to that, like not making it like they used to, whether it's music or movies, I, I find that a, a especially so in you talking about music and that I remember, you know, growing up in the 90s and even in the early 2000s, especially because I was into like heavy metal and grunge and alternative and rock and roll and Good whatever. Stuff. Is it like, you know, when when the radio came on, uh, when a song came on, three, maybe four seconds into it, you knew who it was by how it sounded. Uh -huh. Now, like, yeah. it's it's all the exact Especially same. Especially in the rock genre, Dude, you're talking I, yeah. about all the all the guitars are uh, tuned the same. Yeah. So my buddy's actually uh, he's a guitar player in Seven Dust. Oh no shit! And uh, yeah, Clint. And that's uh, awesome. He was his couple of weeks ago on Twitter. He wrote he wrote something very similar. He said it used to be where I could identify a band. Yeah. He's like now I can listen to a whole song and not know who the fuck it yeah. is. <laughs> oh, I mean, like, I mean, in the '90s, like before there was even the internet, like. You're listening to the radio like Guns N' Roses, fucking Nirvana, Soundgarden. Or you like knew when Rage was Nine coming Inch, on. Nails, Rage. Or like, uh, I think one band that did a really good job at um, differentiating themselves was Korn. Oh, yeah. Because of that low-tuned tone, yeah. bass. Yeah, drop. Like, in the 90s, you knew it was a Korn song. And then yeah. with System of a Down, they did a good job. That's probably yeah. one of my favorite bands. Sure. I think System of a Down, as far as creativity is concerned, um, did a great job separating themselves. Yeah. Yeah, their uh, their toxicity album I think is one of the best ever. Yeah, know. my dad actually bought that album for me. My dad, oh shit, my dad. So was my dad was into that music growing up. I That's mean, sitting, sitting in his art room, you know, when he's when he's illustrating as a member of the Bishopric, he's listening to like Led Zeppelin, White Zombie. What the fuck? Um, I actually heard my first Rage Against the Machine song from my dad. You talk um, about breaking the fucking mold. Yeah, he's a cool. My parents are great people. Like a lot of That's people awesome. meet my folks and say, you know, if I didn't know, I would not have assumed any of this about them because i think a lot of people have assumed um ideas of what mormons are sure. um, my parents are super down to earth very chill my dad loves making uh crude jokes funny jokes He's, <laughs> he has some of the best comedic timing of anyone i yeah, know that's when it comes to telling jokes but uh yeah he introduced me to all that stuff because yeah, awesome. growing up i got into like you know i was into corn i was into silver chair bands yeah. like that but he oh, was yeah. one that showed me white zombie uh rage um 
I think System of Down, I heard from him first because some guy, his work was into him, and he showed him to me. Um, yeah, I, I got a great connection with my dad yeah. about that that music realm for sure. Dude, that's awesome, man. I uh, Yeah, I mean, I grew up, you know, I was in high school in the, in the mid-'90s and or early to mid-'90s, I guess. And, I mean, to me, you know, I think everybody thinks when they were in high school, that's when music was at its but best. But it really actually was, though. But, but yeah, I, I really do think, <laughs> I think the, the mid-'90s. For the rock genre, for sure, I yeah. think 90s and early 2000s yeah. are when it peaked. Yeah. Um, every now and then I'll hear a song from a band now, and typically I'll like it just because it's, like, so ridiculously heavy yeah that'll be what makes me like it mm-hmm. or it'll be a band that goes the exact opposite and does something very slow and melodic yeah. but other than that 99 percent of stuff like I, I don't listen to music that much anymore honestly i listen to a lot of uh of books on tape now even when i'm at the gym i used to feel like i needed like metal music yeah. i'll go to the gym now and put on audible oh, sure. i'll have a great workout <laughs> listening to like some some book about yeah. uh you know some some crisis we're having in in the world about hunger you know yeah that's like, a trip. It it completely. I've just shifted what motivates me. Yeah. For me, I, I'm not that way at all. Like I, I can't. I cannot listen to a book, an audio book. I can't do it. Like I get so fucking distracted with. Yeah. That's how my girlfriend is. She can't anything stand else. It. I mean, I'll find something to distract myself. Like I could sit in a pitch black room and I, like I'd start itching or. Yeah. I mean, like I would. I would figure out a way to to focus on something else. I can't do it. I can't do digital readers either. It's got to be a real fucking book. I, I much prefer the real yeah. thing. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I I probably do four or five audio books a month. Yeah. Wow. That's wild. I uh, music for me is huge. Like it's a. Almost mean not to sound like a well. Tour. I mean, I was a tour manager at one point. Really? I uh, I was a tour manager on the Mayhem Festival with Rob Zombie. How the fuck did you? I mean, where did that fit into um, this whole thing? <laughs> so like, the, the music has always been a huge love of mine. Um, I played the drums growing up, and I really thought that's where I was going to go in life was in a band. I wanted to be in a heavy band, like a metal <laughs> band. And um, oh, that's great. So yeah, I played the drums growing up. I had a friend of mine that I met in college who went on to be in a band called Butcher Babies. I think I've heard um, of that. And they oh. fired their tour manager in the middle of, like right towards the end of a tour. And they called me out of the blue. And she said, hey, we fired a tour manager. We got this big tour coming up. It's going to be with you know, Rob Zombie's headlining. Um, it's going to have like a Monomarth and Five Finger Death Punch. And all these metal bands are going to be on it. And we need a tour manager. And you know music. You know drums. And you know business. You went to business school. She's like, do you want it? And I was like, fuck yeah. So I quit my job and I went on tour like the next week. And uh, so music was a huge part of my life for a long time. And music's probably one of the things that has been most, um, when you talk about life coming full circle for me, uh, like talking about, you know, my buddy Clint and Seven Dust, a lot of these bands I grew up, you know, listening to like Lamb of God and Seven Dust. I'm like friends with a lot of those guys now, either through my writing or through meeting them on tour. And it's just been such one of those holy shit moments where, you know, my, my brother wanted, I can't remember what show my brother wanted to go to. Uh, he wanted to go to a concert in Utah. And I said, oh, yeah, I, I know the bass player. Like, I'll get you backstage passes. And my brother was like so blown away by it. And it made me kind of really just sit and be grateful for the connections I've made to think that, you know, I used to be in a realm where I looked up to all these men and now like they're all friends of mine. Yeah. And you have those moments in life where I'm sure you have that too, when you're driving some of your cars where you just think, wow, I can't believe this is my life. Oh, for sure. I mean, there's, there's times often where I'm, I like 
have to slap myself and be like, how is this even fucking yeah. real? You know? Um, but yeah. you need those times that gratitude yeah. is what keeps you from being that, uh, that young kid we were talking about earlier that became an <laughs> asshole. Yeah. Like you have to have gratitude for yeah. where you are. Yeah. And that's something else I've, I've gravitated towards strongly lately as well is just being grateful for what is yeah. in my life. And, you know, I don't know if you're open to that whole law of attraction kind of way of for living, sure. but when you have gratitude, and like I said earlier, the, the opportunities that come to me now, there's more than I can count. It really came from once I started just appreciating what yeah. I had and who I knew. And it just, it's, it's wild yeah. how something as simple as just opening your mind up to that just changes. A hundred percent. And to me, I, I find that same thing, um, you know, 10 X with, with just helping people, you know, mm -hmm. like I, I don't, I mean, I would say you could, you could border it on not to get psycho babble on you, but almost from a codependent standpoint, like I love helping people, yeah. you know, like if, if I can make somebody's day or help somebody achieve a goal or what, like for me, there, there's almost a high or, or a reward or a dopamine hit that I get from, from helping somebody do something. You know? I, I get that feeling sometimes when people do like a genuine favor for me too. Yeah. Um, like someone will do this, like something really unexpected for you. And you'll get like this wave of like a warmth almost where you're just like, you get this hit of, you can't really explain it, but that's what I mean when I say, I feel like we're all connected by some energy because yeah. there's too many things like that just happen that they don't just, just doesn't make there's sense. something, there's some yeah. reason behind that. Yeah. Well, I, th I think human beings are, are exceptionally unique that way. Animals yeah. don't really do that for each other, you know? Uh -huh. uh, but on the same token, like animals don't kill themselves either. You know, I mean, not like humans do, you know, I mean, there's some where they get to a certain age and like, all right, well, I can't fucking feed myself. I'm going to wander off and freeze to death or whatever. But there's not a, a high incidence of, of suicide within the animal kingdom anywhere. I don't know if there's any, is there? Not really. I can't I mean, think of any animal that happens. Yeah. I mean, so that's a very uh, unique to human experience that's hard to, to well, wrap because we can around. ruminate. We can yeah. ruminate on the things that drive us crazy. Yeah, it's the it's the blessing and the curse of the human it brain. Is. Rumination know, makes you creative, but rumination also make you crazy. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so, John Bonham turned uh, tour manager. Yeah, uh, what, like at, at what point in your uh, career, like age wise and, and ad company wise, were you at when that took place? I was twenty seven. Um, <clears throat> so I was working for a nutrition company at the time. I was probably a couple years into like my formal writing career, and. I was already on the fence about quitting the job I was at. I wasn't happy. And so it came at a perfect time for me. Um, I just did it for one summer. I toured for about three months. Yeah. And I got offered, you know, to go on subsequent tours. But writing really was my passion. And I wanted to get back into it. Yeah. And I knew that if I spent too much time, you know, essentially, you know, as a tour manager, you're a glorified babysitter. Yeah. Um, it's fun, but it's essentially what you are. It's hard. Anyone who's a tour manager knows it's a very demanding job. You don't have much time for yourself. I knew that if I just kept doing that, I wouldn't pursue my own goal in life. Yeah. Basically, I, I was facilitating other people pursuing theirs. And as much as I, I enjoyed being on the road, that didn't sit right with me. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, fast forwarding now back to uh, the mental health, if you want to call it a crisis, a breakdown, an episode, what, you know, whatever, whatever you want to call yeah. it, it was hell. Um, <laughs> how long did that, did that last? Deeply, I was in it for probably six months. And and can you describe? I know you know depression gets. I think everybody has has their idea of what that means, what it feels like, etc. Um, but there there's kind of both varying degrees and and kind of a wide swath of of experience that exists within people's 
experience with it. Can you describe what what like legitimately depressed felt like for it's you? It's one thing to be sad. Everyone's sad. I still get sad. Um, depression is. It feels like a fog that just never dissipates, um, and it's always sustained for a long period of time. Like it's like. You know, someone says, oh, I was really depressed for a couple of days. Like, you were sad. Yeah. <laughs> um, depression, is, is it's a long-term thing. That's why yeah. I say it was about six months. I can think of being really bad where it's almost as if you lose, like, your all your senses as far as your ability to enjoy things. Um, you know, food tasted bad. Like I said, I got that book deal, and I wasn't even remotely thrilled by it it didn't even like shake me it was just something that was like an email and i responded to and like moved on um you're just completely desensitized to the world around you your connections and a lot of it comes from learned habit and my learned habit was my my rumination which like you said earlier is a blessing and a curse i have to ruminate a lot as a writer um but when i started ruminating on everything i felt like i did wrong or everything I felt like wasn't going right in my life. I lost gratitude for what I had. You know, like I should have been very grateful for that book deal. Uh, I should have been very grateful for having a girlfriend who dealt with my my you know depressed self as often as she did and as well as she did. But I wasn't. I was very selfish. And I think that's a confusing thing about depression is it's a very selfish thing. But at the same time, it's unselfish in the sense that you feel like you're a weight to those around you and so that's what kind of makes people start wanting to end it is you feel like you're weighing other people down so there's almost like this idea of nobility about trying to end it to help others out when you don't realize that the ripple effect of the repercussions of you doing that are going to do the be far more destructive than they ever are going to help like you are going to taint or poison those people you love in a way that is incomprehensible like for the rest of their life those closest to you are going to think what if i had said something what did i do they're going to feel responsible they're going to feel responsible and so if you're feeling the need to do it to save them that's the exact opposite thing to do like you need to to pull yourself together and you know i use that word opposite again because that's the only way i was able to do it i had to do everything opposite i had to stop drinking i had to read books that otherwise thought were spiritual and dumb I had to open myself up to the idea of something bigger than myself. I had to become comfortable with telling people no when I didn't want to do something. You know, I'd gotten to this people-pleasing realm, particularly in my hospitality career, where everything's, you know, around socializing. I felt like I could never say no to a party. Like, I had to be at that party. I had to be at that event. I had to get comfortable with disappointing people to put myself first. Yeah. You mentioned uh, books that you read. You, you earlier mentioned The Four Agreements. What were some other ones? Mastery of Self, which was written by his son, <coughs> Don Miguel Ruiz Jr., which you know is someone I also am friends with now, um, which is it's crazy to me because that book, and I told him the Mastery of Self really pulled me out of some shit, and we now have a friendship where we talk you know, probably on a weekly basis. And uh, The Mastery of Life, also written by him, was great. Um I read a book called, I'm trying to think of what it was called. It Doesn't Start With You, I think is the title. I'm not sure. But it's a book about how, you know, learned, uh, learned processes are passed down in your genetic code. Almost like, you know, the field of epigenetics. Yeah. 
um, where trauma can be passed down from parent to child kind of idea. Um, and whether you believe it or not, it's a good book because it helps you kind of open yourself up to the idea that we are a product of our environment and there's things that happen to all of us that we can choose to either break that cycle or we can just be the next in line that that affects. Yeah. And so um, having that mindset too of being someone who doesn't want to be a victim. Yeah. I've never wanted to be a victim of anything. And, you know, my younger brother, for example, he, uh, he allowed like his upbringing to really weigh him down for a while. And he became a victim to circumstance. And I never wanted to be someone like that. You know, we had the same upbringing. We're from the same family. And so I wanted to do the exact opposite and be like, you know what? Our parents did what the best they could. I'm sure there's things about growing up in our religion that kind of like taught us to suppress. Like that was one of the things that I, I was really weighed down by in the Mormon faith is I learned to suppress a lot because it was just kind of something we did. Yeah. So I didn't talk a lot about things that were going wrong to me because when I talked about something that was wrong in my life, especially growing up as a teenager, when you're already confused, the answer was almost always, you know, read a scripture seek God. Yeah. And that's not what I needed. What I needed at the time was like a human to talk to me like a human. Yeah. And so I just started suppressing everything because the answer, I didn't want to hear it. I didn't want to hear the answer was in some book. You know, sure. I, I wanted my dad or I wanted my neighbor to relate to me on a human level. And so I had to get past the idea of suppressing things and talking to people. And it's reflected a lot in my work too, where I'm, I'm very open about, you know, you asked before we recorded this certain thing I won't talk about. And there's really not because even the things that are hard to talk about, there's benefit to other people hearing it. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, those books, opening myself up to talking, like I said, talking to a therapist is all stuff that I was closed off to. Yeah. Um, but once I was willing to try, um, it all changed for me. Sure. Uh, I got a book from a good friend of mine. You know who you are. Uh, Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself. I haven't started reading it yet. Have you heard of this? No, but it sounds like a good book to read already. Yeah. Well, I'll get, I'll, you, you can flip through it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> if, you, if you could read it for the rest of the episode, that'd be great. Uh, no, but I mean, stuff like that uh, agreed. Like in the last few years, I've, I've completely turned my mind upside down to shit like that. You know, especially coming from like, you know, the military background. Very, it's like very, very stoic, hardcore, like yeah. fuck everybody. You like, know, show emotion. Yeah, handle your own shit. Fucking stop being a pussy. You know, whatever. It's like. Yeah. So like that, you know, and I spent, you know, from 18 to 30 in the SEAL teams, which is like the the epitome of, of that type of bravado, double A oh, person. I read Goggins book. I know yeah, about that you know, shit. So, so that, like that, that's, a, that's a hard thing to, to shake, you know, not that there isn't value in it because there is, you know, there's been a lot of benefit that has come to, to taking the approach in some instances of, Hey, fucking deal with it and figure out a way to at times, you know, at times that mindset's very beneficial, Yeah, but not all the time, yeah. you know, and, and, and that's a, a crucial balance to strike. I, I think is, you know, just like with the super religious versus anti-religious, you know, the, the happy spot is the medium. Well, it's just like with politics. Yeah. Yeah. It's everything like the, is that middle that life is gray. Yeah. All of life is gray. There's yeah. very few things in life that are black and white. Yeah. You have to learn to mix and mold things um, to get by. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, when you were talking about the books, uh, was there anything that was uncomfortable about um, mentioning those and how they helped you? Not really. I mean, it, more so it's just I read so many 
in such a short amount of time, it's hard for me to pinpoint the ones that are the best. And so I want to make sure I mention the ones that are really good. Interestingly, I'm not a body language expert, but I will say um, dog training is all body language and nonverbal communication. It's the only time during the interview that you crossed your arms. It's because I I wanted to make sure I mentioned the right ones. I was like, I want, I want to do, I want to do service to the authors that really deserve it. And so I was trying to think of which books at the time really meant a lot to me. And, you know, the mastery itself, like, that yeah. was easy, for, like, that one for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just struggled to think what the other ones were because it all, it's like when you ingest so much information so quickly, you kind of forget which book you got it yeah. from, but you, you'll take it with sure. you in life. You'll know, like, okay, this one paragraph really stuck with me. Yeah. And I just, I don't want to avoid just saying yeah. the wrong one. <laughs> Maybe that's Dane Cook's excuse for stealing your quote. Fuck that guy. He knew exactly <laughs> what he was doing. Yeah. Well, hopefully Unfuck America will make that list. I doubt it, uh, given the the stuff that you've done, but I hope you enjoy it at a minimum. Um, all right. So from, from a current issue standpoint, like Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, social media in general, the mainstream media, there's this weird, like perfect storm and culmination of just this toxic, divisive, um, super politically charged, zero room for fucking understanding world that we live in. I'm curious, like when you go to bed or, you know, wake up just during the day, what have you, when you think about kind of where we're at as a society, as a, as a race of human beings, what sticks out to you as being kind of the top three or five, like hotbed topics that, uh, you know, that are dividing people or that you feel strongly about, or are there? I think the main thing that everyone's being divided on is we need to start having conversations in person again. I think we've lost the art of actually talking through problems. And a lot of the stuff doesn't belong on social media as far as social media is not the right outlet to have some of these conversations because it is so divisive and it's character limited and you can't read body language like you were just talking about. And people feel very comfortable expressing their opinion online, but they won't do it in person. Yeah. I think a hundred percent with that. I mean, even the difference, I mean, I, I always prefer an in-person interview. Well, for that's all why I, I was, I was already yeah. going to be in Texas when yeah. we found out about this one. I was like, I'm definitely gonna do that in person. Yeah. I don't want to do it on zoom yeah. or Skype or something. It's just shit. not the same. It's, it's not, not, it's not even close to the same, you know, but even something as simple as tone inflection volume, uh-huh. there's a lot of emotion that you, that you read in people's voices that you don't get. You People know. need to have conversations with friends. Yeah. And, they and need to be comfortable expressing differing opinions with friends. Yeah. And your friends need to be comfortable with your differing opinions. It used to be that like your friend could not agree with you, but you could still be a friend with them. And now people are so um, tribal yeah. in their wanting to be seen as right. And yeah. I think a lot of people now are afraid of being ostracized. Mm-hmm. Um, they're afraid of being outcast or they're afraid of, you know, being canceled, if you want to yeah. use that word. Um, so they just, uh, they self-censor themselves yeah, yeah. and social media is the perfect breeding ground for self-censorship and that'll cause depression. Yeah. That'll cause anxiety. That'll cause a lot of stress in your life that otherwise you wouldn't have if you were willing to have conversations with people. Um, I was talking with a clerk that was bagging my groceries at, at a Trader Joe's about two months ago. And I try and always talk with, with, you know, people when we're doing that, because I like to have that moment to kind of connect with them. Um, and he actually thanked me for talking to him. Really? Like he said to me, like very sincerely, he's like, you know, thank you for having a conversation with me. And at one, on one side, it made me feel good. And the other side, it made me be like, man, we're fucked. how fucked are people yeah. that this guy has to thank you 
we're having a conversation with yeah. him. Like, how many people are coming in here not talking to you? Yeah. And it's because everything is so politically charged, no one wants to have the conversation. You'll notice when you go out and you'll be talking to people, they'll wait until they hear your opinion. <laughs> yeah, before they will Before tell you. they start really opening up to you. Yeah. Like, they'll, they'll ease into... Yeah a subject and they'll yeah. see how you respond it and they'll be yeah. like okay this is someone i can be myself with yeah and that's what really needs to dissipate yeah no for sure the uh there's a huge component uh that that in-person versus not thing that i see you know watching my kids grow up and, and now that they're they're getting older you know they're they're well into their teen years seeing the the generation of kids now and and how socially inept they are uh, be, because there, there's if, if you look at you know a typical day for for a teenage kid especially over the last few years of, of you know all the covid and mask bullshit the amount of time that they spent when they interact with other human beings how much of it is this versus how much of it is this it's and and, and it's 99 you know I, i'm seeing somebody type me something i'm not i'm not looking at their eyes and their facial and you're expressions not talking and, to a real person most of the time right. because that person is being a subdued version of themselves or sure. they're pretending to be someone they're not like it's just no one is it's very hard to have a 100% authentic conversation yeah. with anyone on social media agreed and and to me like there's the facial feature social cue thing but there's another element that i think a lot of people don't don't think of or realize until you you kind of talk about it which is giving somebody just enough time to, to think about what they're going to say, mm-hmm. right? Whether it's text message on social media, like maybe you take two hours to decide how you're going to respond to something is vastly different than how you're going to respond. If you ask me a question right now. And, yeah, and imagine how, if I took two hours to respond yeah. to every question, we yeah, have take one two question. Fucking weeks, <laughs> you know, uh, but yeah, it, but it's like, you know, what do you really fucking, th- what you really think is, is how you're going to respond to me in person. If you're willing to share that, yeah. you know, but that, that, pause gives people the you know and, and i talk about this in the book is that people are, are understanding with the intent to respond not to understand how do i respond in a way it's not going to get me judged yeah or um, to be right what do you think what do i think this person wants to hear from me yeah um or you know for example if you're responding in a comment section how do i respond in a way it's going to get a lot of people to like my comment right yeah. which to me you can very much tell in the comment section when someone is like yeah. oh this is going to be a crowd favorite yeah so i'm going to yeah. say this even though yeah. i probably don't agree with it but everyone else is going to yeah yeah and that was one of the big i heard someone talk about this recently when they added the like feature to social media comments was really the downfall of good conversation for sure because now people were performing to try yeah. and get attention yeah and and all of them are so manufactured and and thought out i mean it's almost like the world that you lived in in, in advertising or like pr work or, or yeah. even hr work where it's like what's our company's position well that's why i love that i worked in that realm yeah. because i know behind the scenes like i've worked on political campaigns um i've helped people get elected into office um, and I know any of them you're ashamed to have done that. No, for? because yeah. the advertising agency I was working for, the owner was very clear in saying, he told me, he said, Kyle, if you're not comfortable with anything you ever have to work on, whether it's a product or a person, you don't have to, Yeah, we have another writer. We have other members of the team. If you don't feel, if you like personally feel objected to it. And so I never worked for on the political campaigns that were guys I didn't like, Yeah, but at the same time, it was eye-opening to see how some of these people were behind closed doors or to hear the conversations that were had or to know about how words were twisted or to know that it was some guy like me in his mid-20s creating these <laughs> campaign slogans yeah. that didn't really know what the fuck he was doing other than the fact that it sounded clever. Yeah. 
to know that that's how it comes together, it's like, wow, this is kind of fucked. It's <laughs> <laughs> a total fucking scam. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't know shit about these policies, but I wrote that slogan because it yeah. sounds really good. <laughs> uh, that's how it was. Uh, yeah. That's fucking crazy, man. Um, all right. So the, the hotbed topics that, you know, are, are pissing everybody off and, and uh, are out there, I'm going to just list off a handful of them. And if any of them stick out as being something that you give enough of a shit about to give your opinion. It's going to be gun control. It's going to be Roe v. Wade. Some other one. Yeah, no, I mean, two, two, two out of the list. So just <laughs> politics in general, uh, elections, guns, abortion, border issues, drugs, foreign policy, education system. Do you give enough of a shit about any of those things to take a, a stance or an opinion on? The one I probably have the most, at least knowledge to give an opinion on is guns, mm-hmm. for example. Um, I grew up in Utah. I grew up around guns. Um, my Boy Scout experience was very different than most Boy Scouts because my scout leader was, uh, I'm not sure what he was, but he was a contractor for the government and he yeah. went on extended hunting trips often. And For people or animals? This yes. thing, we don't know because we, we always had our suspicions about him because yeah. um, we'd go on scout camps and he would teach us how to make bombs. So it wasn't Ernest goes to camp. This and is like fucking yeah, Rambo. He would, uh, he would bring... Uh, full auto um, <laughs> guns that he had and he would show us he, he taught us how to reload bullets yeah he taught us how to dig a snow cave and live in it for like my scouting experience was very crazy yeah. but awesome yeah and <clears throat> so i grew up around that stuff i was very comfortable with it i remember being in you know i was probably 13 or 14 being handed a fully auto and just shoot that direction yeah. kind of thing on a scout camp and i never thought guns were bad I mean, I grew up with a pellet gun. My dad got me a BB gun when I was a little kid. We used to shoot in our basement. And so it wasn't until I moved to New York that I realized how different some people viewed guns. Yeah. And it was just weird to me because I was so comfortable with them. And then when I moved to LA and started dating my girlfriend, she had never shot a gun before. And it comes down to this whole thing we're talking about product for your environment. I was raised around them, so I'm very comfortable with them. I know they're a tool. I know what they're capable of. I know how to safely handle it. But my girlfriend, like she basically viewed a gun like a hand grenade. Yeah. Like she said, growing up in California, we were basically taught if you touched a gun, it went off. Yeah. So I took her to a shooting range. I got her to shoot a nine millimeter handgun. And she was comfortable with it. And she was like, that was nothing like I thought it was gonna be. Yeah. Um, and then I always had I always had shotguns and stuff. I never felt the need to have anything other than that. I did duck hunting growing up. And so I went years without having a gun. And about a year ago, with what was going on, my girlfriend actually said to me, she's like, you know what, I think uh, I think we should get a gun. And I was like, you know, I think so too. I think with, with the way the world's going, it's probably smart to have one. I haven't had one for a while. I'm comfortable with them. So I went and got like a little a home protection shotgun kind of thing. And then before we moved out of Vegas, I was like, you know what, I got my Vegas ID. I should probably buy another one while, it's, while I can. So I went and got a handgun. Yeah. And so I have a, a little, you know, home protection shotgun and a handgun right now. And... I recently started hunting again because I wanted to have more of a connectiveness to like my realm, my world, my food. And I went hunting out here in Texas actually, and they had me use an AR and I'd only shot an AR one other time. My brother had one probably 10 years ago and I nothing against them, but I'd never used one for anything other than like shooting at targets. And they had me use an AR to hunt wild boar out here. And I don't know if you've ever hunted wild boar, but yeah. you can put like several rounds in them and they still run. Yeah. And I was like, holy shit, like this actually makes a lot of sense to have an AR. 
and it completely changed the way my girlfriend felt about him too. Mm-hmm. And it really made me realize the whole anti-AR debate specifically is, you know, no one needs one. Yeah. But there actually is practical use for them. But at the same time, the fact they don't want you to have one yeah. probably means you should. Yeah. Uh-huh. Is, is the way I view it now. And I yeah. told my girlfriend, I was like, the fact they're saying no after what I've seen happen the past two years means we should get one. For so sure. I actually recently bought an AR. Yeah. And uh, I used it to hunt wild boar just recently in Florida. So, like, I bought one that I could use for hunting, but I also bought one because they told me I shouldn't have one, which kind of backfired. It made me feel like I needed to have one. And so I'm not like some – I mean, I I don't feel the need to own a lot of them, but I totally get it if you want to. Yeah. Um, I plan to use mine. And, like, just to say again, it's the fact that they said no that made me want to have one. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, I think – it's gone about in such a such a wrong way, uh, you know, from so many angles that a lot of people, uh, you know, have that same same kind of thing. You know, I think you can take it too far, but ultimately the yeah. you know, the reality of you know it's either a free country or it isn't. You know, like that. Well, you don't need this. It's like we well, don't need a lot of shit. Yeah. Like you know, you don't need McDonald's for that matter. I mean, I've I've used this argument. I use it in, in that book, and I've used it on on a few podcasts too. Is that uh, you know talking about uh, school shootings and things of that nature. Um, you know, when, when you look at, at the data, which really is, is what should drive everything, you know, not, not to turn people, especially children being, being killed into, into a line item or a number. But the reality is, is that the severity of issues is, is largely driven by, by the data that supports it or not, mm-hmm. you know, and, and if you look at, um, school shootings in particular, and how many, how many children on average per year die in those versus, drowning in backyard swimming pools it's uh disproportionately swayed towards the drowning in backyard swimming pools you know way more kids drown in 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 a fucking eight by 12 swimming pool in your backyard than than get shot in a in a school environment every year no there's no campaigns to uh, drive cement trucks all over neighborhoods and fill people's swimming pools in because well you don't need a fucking swimming pool in your background right well, i think the reason why is because one is seen as an accident and one is seen as very intentional and so it's the it's the intentional aspect of a shooting that makes it so alarming sure. to people yeah, um, i mean ag- agreed but but data is still data yeah. you know i mean the the fact is is that in terms of evaluating or, or placing a value a, a numbered value on a problem is that is that that is is the reality of it you know is is that i think there's an emotional response and, and yes like I, i'm a father i get it like I, i've there's been instances at my kids schools before where they've been locked down where there's a potential something or other and, and there's that split second of thinking holy fuck you know what is going on there you know and, and you have no idea and you can't get a hold of them and, and there's a you know a a fucking, you know, bulletin put out, you know, citywide that, that this school is shut down and there's an active shooter scenario. And, and it turns out that some dude, you know, flashed a pistol at Walmart nearby or whatever, you know, but, but either way, like your, your mental, you know, uh, thought process is, is the same thing is that there's a, there's a visceral and, and extremely remote, uh, emotional response to seeing a child murdered in a, in a school environment that's not, it's supposed to be everything the exact opposite of that. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, is that, you know, you don't need swimming pools, you don't need Snickers bars, you don't need McDonald's, you know, is one more intentional than the other? Yes, but at the end of the day, the fact is, is that far more kids die of 
of obesity and cancer and drowning and, and a lot of other shit that nobody talks about. Whereas, you know, there's also, while there's intent, um, you know, from a school shooter or a mass shooter in, in that regard, there's also a benefit to, uh, you know, firearms and, and there are a lot of good that can come out of them also, you know, so. Well, yeah, exactly. And you've seen a lot of people, you know, point out the fact that a lot of these politicians that are pulling for gun control are protected by people that have the exact yeah. same things they're trying to get rid of. Um, same thing with border walls and having, you know, fences around. <clears throat> I think it comes down to making sure someone's uh, responsible with it. And, you know, I use the example with my girlfriend. Like I have, like I said, I have an AR now. Um, I would be perfectly fine with them raising the age to get a semi-auto weapon to the same age you need to rent a car because I couldn't rent a car until I was 25. Yeah. Why is that? Like, how come you can't get a car until you're 25 and then you can drive one at 16? I would be perfectly fine with them raising the age to something similar to that. I think it's obviously going to upset a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, when you're young and you want, if you're young and you like shooting, they're very fun to own a weapon like that. It's fun to go shoot a weapon like that. But if you had to raise the age of it, and if it somehow could be proved that it got into more responsible hands, I totally support that. But even then, the age doesn't prove responsibility either because you got people that are 40 that are pieces of shit. You got kids that are 18 that are very respectful. And so I think, you know, there's not an easy solution to it, but I think there needs to be um, more gun education uh, to me, that- I think people need to be most of the people, like I said, with my girlfriend, for example, who, who weren't around guns, think they're something they're not. Yeah, they don't understand them. Yeah. I, I think education, like with most things in life, is the key is that uh, yeah. sh- shitty, shitty decisions, overcorrections, emotional responses are, are usually out of ignorance. Yeah. In, in every way. And I don't know how that looks, but I think if there's more education towards it, I think yeah. people would change a bit. I mean, to me, it's, it's simple if you look at it from a historical uh, standpoint, which I'll get into in a second. But to your point on raging the, uh, raising the age and, and why I would disagree with it on, on two fronts potentially, to me, it, it's worth talking about. Um, but, you know, to me, like prescription medication is a good example of uh, the road to hell being paved with good intentions or... Or, you know, intentions on having a, a check and balance or a, a gatekeeper of sorts to keep prescription meds, opiates, et cetera, out of the hands of kids or people that, you know, don't hold that prescription doesn't fucking work. You know, it either comes from Mexico or like you said, like, oh, you got a prescription? Well, I'm going to hook my buddies up. Exactly and, you know, it so it's like it's, it's not any different with guns. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's a fuck ton that come out of Mexico and and and, and everything for that for that matter. I mean heroin right it's a federal offense or a federal felony in all 50 states with the exception of maybe oregon now uh you know but but either way like here in texas right having heroin is is a felony right but i'll tell you right now with 200 dollars in your pocket and about 20 minutes of of going anywhere in dallas you can find it right so it's it's not an issue of like if if people are naive enough to think that passing certain laws are going to keep guns whether it's loopholes or you know the the boyfriend loophole the gun show loophole whatever like that that's a fool's errand that that makes 
politicians feel like they're doing something and uneducated dipshits who are naive think that they're solving problems and they're not. Well, that's why I say I don't know what it looks like. And I yeah. think it's a slippery slope. To, um, me, it, to me, it's education. It, it is the, I, I, yeah, I think that's the only thing you yeah. only answer. I just don't know how to do that. I mean, so so guns from a from a restriction standpoint are harder to get now than they ever have been in the history of the country, right? Strangely enough, ironically enough, coincidentally enough, is that you know more more mass shootings and and gun violence is enacted on people now than it ever has been before. Uh, you know, sixty seventy years ago, you could order firearms out of the Sears catalog and they would that. mail them to you. At that same time, most public education had firearm safety as part of the curriculum the same way that they had driver's education. Mm. I think both of them should still be implemented in all public education so that you don't have that. Yeah. I don't know what it is, and I'm scared shitless of it because yeah. it's loud and it, and it can kill people. If, if, you, if you've never ridden in a car, right, never driven a car, barely ever even seen a car, and now you're 19 years old, right, and you throw somebody in a fucking Ferrari, they're going to shit themselves, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so, it, it, I mean, to me, it's, it's really no different that way is that there's been this strange, ironic, unintended consequence of trying to take them away from people and, and not exposing children to them because, oh, they're dangerous, so lock them up and never yeah. let them see them. Like, that does them a disservice because now there's this weird boogeyman syndrome as it relates to these things that... Just like with anything else, that whether it's like I'm bored and I want to sound tough or the street cred of trying drugs or, or whatever else, is that guns now have this weird um, you know, faux pas attached to them that either attract people and the wrong people because they don't understand them or make people that don't understand them scared shitless of them. Well, and I think you brought up a good point, too. Or you said they're harder to get than ever. Um, I didn't realize how difficult it was to get an AR. Yeah. Like I, when I, when I decided I wanted to get one, I did my research. I was like, okay, I want this one. This one's going to be dual purpose. I ordered it and I didn't realize there was a five day waiting period in the state of Florida. They call it like a cooling off period. And I told my girlfriend, I was like, all this stuff you're hearing on the news, they make it seem like you can go in and just buy one. Yeah. I was like, I have a perfectly clean record. Yeah. I have nothing on my record. I did a full background check. And I still have to wait a five days. They don't, no one talks about that being a thing. Yeah. Like, and it's less, it's, it's only if you've been through it yourself that you understand, like, wait a minute, there already are, a lot of these parameters they're talking about are actually already in place. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have a concealed weapons permit here in Texas, which is good in like 37, 38 other states. Um, but even if I buy a firearm here in Texas, I still have to fill out the application huh? and they still have to do a background check every single time. It's like they know I have, you know, however many fucking guns already. I, I have them sitting at my house. I have ammo. Oh, you want to buy another one? You still have to fill this out. And we mm -hmm. still have to run a background check and, and still go through all that. Even with all of my training, having a concealed weapons permit in the, in the state of Texas, which is arguably outside of probably Alaska, the easiest state in the, in the union to be able to buy firearms. And I still have to go through all that. Yeah. You know, so yeah, I mean, it's, I think, you know, like with most things is that uh, it really boils down to, to ignorance. Uh, how do you think that education looks like? How, how would they do that? Is I, it something I, that's like a mandatory? Yeah, I think for all age group at a certain yeah, age group. Yeah, or? I, yeah I, th I think just understanding like like a range safety officer brief, right, is that, hey, here, here's how they work. Right. And, and some some couple simple things. If you're going to pick one up, you know, be, be able and, and understand and know how to safely inspect it, A, to, to make sure that it's either loaded or not mm -hmm. loaded. No, understand how to check that. 
you know, don't put your finger on the trigger unless you're ready to shoot it. Don't point the the barrel of the gun at anything that you're not willing to shoot. Because I remember growing up in Utah, now we're talking about it. I remember in elementary school, a police officer coming to my class. I probably would have been in fourth or fifth grade yeah. based on the school. And I remember a police officer giving us a briefing like that with a firearm. Yeah, I mean, to and me, I don't know if that's something that happens in other states. Or maybe because I, mean, I was in a small town in Utah, yeah. but I remember that being a thing. Very rarely now, um, you know. And, and to me, like a basic, whether it's NRA or or CCW, you know, any state sanctioned requirements for concealed weapons carry. I mean, whatever it is, it just a, a basic firearm safety class where it's like now you understand how it works, you understand how to pick one up properly, mm. and, and how to be safe with it, and then shoot it. So that everybody knows how to do that. And so that it removes the holy fuck, what is that? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, to me, it's it's like a, a nudie mag that you find in your dad. Like if you like you see the cover and, and like you see, you know, the uh, the the box that he slides, you know, under his bed, you know, or whatever. But when you it's never secretive. Get to, it seems a lot more powerful. Yeah, than it's it like, is. no, it's in the safe. No, I don't even want you looking in the safe. Yeah, like, yeah, no, yeah. He's, oh, it's my gun. Let me put it away real quick. And kids are naturally like, well, what the fuck is that? I want to like I want to I want to yeah. finger fuck that. I want to know what the deal is with that thing. So, so take that, that essence away from it. And, and so now if everybody understands how they work, understands how to pick one up safely, understands how to shoot it safely, so much of that stigma attached to how dangerous they are gets, gets erased. You know? I would and, agree. And to like me, my, just, my girlfriend's completely flipped on them. Yeah, like for that reason. After she's used one a few times. Right. And when we got that shotgun for home defense, I got in those little short like Mossberg shockwaves, I think yeah. they're called. Um, I made sure she put like 50 rounds through it. I said, the worst thing you can have is a gun you're afraid of. Sure. Yeah. Like we need to go shoot this. We're out in, we're out in the desert of Nevada at the time. And she grew to like, kind of like it. She's like, oh, this is actually kind of fun. Like I understand how to load it now. I can shoot milk jugs with it. And she is just like her family is all still in California and they probably will not understand it unless they get the same experience with one. Yeah. I I think that's the key. And, And that's the key with everything. I mean, any of these issues that you talk about most people uh and and i think ironically enough um you know the the people that are usually the squeakiest wheel on a lot of these issues are are oftentimes the most misinformed or underinformed on them you know i said it's true with a lot of things i'm just gun control for sure yeah like like they have a couple of bullet points that are that are emotionally just just like what you used to do for a living people that are very calculated in how they're presenting this Mm -hmm. problem pissing people off that don't even really understand what they're pissed off about. And now they're spewing that same stuff and trying to drum up this, you know, national movement to, you know, to go march on fucking Capitol Hill or whatever. And, and bitch well, it's like what you just said. I remember I was talking to someone else about this. Um, what, like I, I think I told you this too, when I was looking what happened the first part of like two years ago, seeing like the headlines, the way they were written. And I have a lot of peers who are like editorial writers who write for news stations. And like I said, they're, like I told you, they're very talented. And I would look at the headlines they'd write, similar to these bullet points you're talking about, and I could see the word they chose yeah. and the why they chose that word. And I'd be like, you motherfucker, man. <laughs> yeah. Like, I know exactly what you're doing. Yeah. I know you're charging this headline. And a lot of people are starting to finally catch on to that. But they're very much is that technique used in every part of a polarizing topic because yeah. there are there those those people the pr teams that are working for politicians are some of the highest paid you'll ever yeah. find and they're brilliant you know? because they're brilliant yeah. they know exactly they could do it with either side of the argument you yeah. could hire them for either side of the argument 
and they will know exactly what to say to get the reaction yeah. they're wanting. So essentially, whatever headlines you see, you know who who has the biggest bankroll, right? You know, it's whoever's <laughs> paying these brilliant fucking advertisers uh, the most money. Yeah, no shit. Um, because it's such a, a big, uh, big ticket item here lately. Do you have a, a position on abortion? I don't want to get too too far into the fucking rabbit holes of. Uh, I'm fine talking about it to the extent that um, I do believe it needs to be available. Um, I think the again, I think the solution to that is there needs to be some kind of cap on yeah. when. Um, I don't know when that is. I don't know enough about it medically, but it has to be an available option. Um, especially being a new father myself. And if you're not ready to have a kid, you should know that and you should know it fairly quickly yeah. and you should make that choice quickly. Um, that's part of being a responsible individual is making a choice and sticking with it. And if you regret it later, mm -hmm. that's also part of life. Life yeah. is hard. A lot of life is, uh, is difficult to deal with. Um, and it also, it needs to be available with, you know, rape, incest, mother's health. Like there's, there's times when an abortion is, it's not the preferable option, but when you're faced with something horrible, it becomes the most preferable option. Yeah. Um, so I do think it needs to be available. I just think there needs to be some kind of cap on when, yeah. because at some point I do believe that is a life. It is, it is a child and if it has gotten to the point where it is a child and you still haven't made up your mind, like you should have made up your mind sooner. Yeah. Like at, at that point now you take responsibility for it and you find a way to raise this kid. Yeah. You find a way to, uh, to go on with life. And then if you end up regretting what you did later on, I mean, that's life's hard. Yeah. Life's hard. I, I don't think there's any way to avoid pain in life. I don't think there's any way to avoid regret and there's no way to avoid making tough decisions. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's, it's, uh, too often it's, it's oversimplified. You it's know? so um, complex. And this is like when I talked about earlier about conversations to have on social media, this is not a conversation yeah. to have on social media. Yeah. And, and it's one of those things where it's like, people are so emotionally charged about it that you can't even fucking Rightfully re so. reason with them though. Yeah. You know, it's like their, their brain is, is not reachable. You know, there's, there's a, a lot of similarities between human behavior and, and canine behavior. And this is one of them, though, is, is that, you know, the, the higher uh, the emotional charge is, the, the less logic and reasoning that exists. Mm -hmm. And so when dogs are loaded in fucking drive, you know, it's one of one of most dog owners biggest issues is impulse control. And, and dogs, wh whatever their drives are, some are way higher than others, but they there's something that they want. And, th and that level of desire brims uh, and simmers to a point where it starts to boil over. And then that's when they're trying to reach their dog's mind. Hey, my mm -hmm. dog is super leash reactive. So, okay, we'll put him on a leash and get him around a dog that's trying to rip his fucking head off and we'll deal with it. That's not the time to fucking deal with it. The time to deal with it is when there's something that he kind of wants mm -hmm. where, where you can still reach his mind and teach him, hey, even though I know you want that, you, you have to wait to, to get it or something that you want, whether it's a, a reward, depending on what the dog is driven for. If it's affection, then that. If it's a, a ball on a string, if it's food, if it's, you know, uh, you know, the, the absence of pressure of me being close to it, if it's an aloof dog that doesn't like fucking personal attention, I mean, whatever it is, is that that is, is in essence the reward, but, and that's going to vary from dog to dog. But, but similarly is that, you know, when people try to try to reach that dog's mind, when they're at a level 12 out of 10, mm -hmm. you have two options. You're either going to pick a fight with a fucking dog, 
or you're going to crush that dog's spirit to the point where, where you completely stifle his Well, you have to right. meet him at the same level. If yeah. they're already operating at a 12, you got to meet him at a 12, at a which is not the right way to do it a lot yeah. of the time. Yeah, I mean, only two things are going to happen. If it's a really strong dog that, that has a lot of backbone and spine, you're going to be wearing that fucking dog, and he's going to redirect it on you, or the the level of, of punishment or, or uncomfort is going to be so severe that you completely crush the dog's spirit and shut him down. You know, so it's a lose-lose, but... My point is, is that, you know, abortion being one of those things is that, you know, there's a there's a, such a, a heavy emotional charge to both sides to where it's like you can't even reason with somebody when it's like if, if you're not just so vehemently opposed to it, then you're a fucking murderer and I want to kill you because of it. Or on the other side, like if you want to fucking regulate anything that I have going on, then then you're a fucking Nazi and I want to mm-hmm. kill you because of that. And it's like. That's what we just talked about earlier. I mean, there's nothing black and white about life. Like, I think most of us, if we were willing to find common ground these days, which is very rare because we've been forced into these ideologies on either side, we would find that there's a lot of pro-life and pro-choice in each of of us. Yeah. Like, a lot of humans, like, we have the same emotions. We can relate really well to each other if we allow ourselves to relate. Yeah. And we're just not doing that. And social media is one of those primary yeah. walls that keeps people from doing it. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a petri dish for assholery, if that's a word, you know. Well, I mean, and just performatism. Yeah. Um, either, either you're going to go on there to pick a fight and be an asshole, or you're going to go on there and perform and say stuff yeah. that you don't really mean because you're afraid of being seen as one yeah. of these ends of it. You're afraid of being ostracized. You're afraid of being called something. Yeah. And so you perform, and every time you do that, it just becomes more and more of your you know, like that book, you know, breaking the habit of being yourself, it becomes more and more of a habit for you to perform. And then next thing you know, you don't know what your opinion is on anything. Yeah. Yeah. Everything is calculated with this, like, how is it going to be received? You know, before, before I give you my opinion on anything is how how are you going to take it? How are the masses going to take it? And I think one of the biggest uh, contributing factors to that is, is corporate America taking stances now on everything, you know, and and shutting people down. And because we're in such like an e-commerce platform societally uh financially is that it's so easy for companies to say i don't like what you did i'm gonna i'm gonna cut your nuts off financially because of of the stance that you're taking and now everybody's you know tiptoeing around on fucking eggshells about what they think because they're worried that you know they're gonna lose their job they're gonna lose a sponsorship they're gonna lose you know fucking whatever because everybody is is so overly sensitive about initially it. it was a brilliant marketing strategy to be the first corporation that took a stance yeah um you know like four or five years ago when you didn't see it happen often i mean from an advertising perspective if you were willing to uh to take that risk it paid off big time because a lot of yeah. people talked about it yeah but like you're saying now it's become so commonplace that people know when it's uh, disingenuous and 99% of the time it is because again, I've worked for companies that have been like, Oh, it's such and such month. Oh, it's this holiday. We need to release this. It's like, why though? Yeah. Because you feel you have to, do you actually mean any of this? I also feel like it's a lose lose too, because you know, generally speaking, pick any of these issues. It's, it's pretty 50, 50 Uh on them. It is, you know, and and so taking a stance, you're going to alienate, half of your customer base you know if you're willing to take the stance because you genuinely believe it and you know it's going to uh to crush your bottom line i actually kind of respect that for sure if you're like you know what i own this business and i feel strongly about it go for it but if you're just going to do it just to try and perform then i agree like it's the risk of it is never going to outweigh the reward Yeah. yeah absolutely uh all right so what what do you have going on now like what uh what's next uh i just finished up uh a pilot script 
for a TV series that I'm hoping to get made. It'll be um, like an adult animated series. Oh, cool. So it'll be very fucking crude. <laughs> Some like Bob's uh, Burgers kind of shit or what? Yeah, but... Uh, more like history based. Oh, that's cool. Um, kind of based on some of my, my other books. Um, but I like the idea of doing it because it, it's a new creative realm for me to get into. Yeah. And it'll be something that allows me and the other writers that I've worked with, very talented, to, like you're saying, talk about some of these issues in ways that you can't talk about in uh, other platforms. Yeah. Like you'll find that when you have a cartoon character, you can make jokes you're not supposed to make. You can make points in ways that you couldn't make otherwise because you can kind of touch that third rail that a lot of people yeah. avoid. So it's like Triumph the comic dog talking shit to people's faces, but because he's got a fucking rock. Yeah. yeah. So I think it'll be <laughs> I think it'll be fun because I think it'll also kind of bring back some of the comedy that I think has been lacking. Yeah. Um, like there's those ones that are like, you know, Family Guy, tried yeah. and true. They never change their formula. Yeah. And that's why Family Guy's always funny. Yeah. Um, I respect that kind of writing a lot. Um, I also just finished a series of children's books. Really? Um, which I was really enjoyed working on harder than I thought it was going to be to write. Um, Is it like little Johnny finds his dad's porno mags or what? Are you <laughs> no, like real <laughs> tried and true children's books. Um, yeah. Growing up, I always really, uh, I really enjoyed Shel Silverstein yeah. as a writer. And I really enjoyed um, Dr. Seuss. Yeah. And I actually have like I don't know, a, an original Dr. Seuss in my house oh, that wow. was given to me through a friend of my dad's. And I've always um, enjoyed that style of creativity. I enjoyed the challenge of infusing a fairly complex lesson into a children's book. And so I wrote the first one. It's being sold to publishers right now. My dad's actually illustrating it. Oh, that's awesome. Which has been a really cool project for us to work on together. And again, I liked it because it's out of my traditional realm. Um, and, and both of those authors here recently have taken kind of a lot of heat for uh, for some of the concepts that they have in their books. Yeah, too, which, but their concepts are like they're <coughs> those ones we talked about that are evergreen. Yeah, like the stuff they wrote about is stuff that's perpetually going to be human behavior. I mean, yeah. Huckleberry Finn came yeah. across some cancel culture stuff because it talks about you know race and stuff in it. Yeah, but it's always going to be a thing, and that's yeah. what the issue with trying to uh, to censor books is you censor like messages that need to be heard just because they're uncomfortable yeah like uncomfortable messages are still valid if not more valid than other messages because the discomfort is what creates learning yeah um so yeah i enjoyed the children's books it was something different for me and then i'm also kind of poking away here and there at a memoir because i kind of feel like i'm at a point in my life i used to think it was fairly um braggadocious or kind of self-serving to write a memoir unless you were like over 50. I was like, uh, you got to be an old guy to write a memoir. Yeah. Like, you have to have like have some weathered years. But I think you a, have to have some. You know? I've had enough people come to me and from all walks of life and different age groups and find like because my my trajectory in life has been very odd. Like, I've had yeah. a lot of different jobs yeah. and a lot of careers and kind of been all over. And I do feel like that uh, I can offer something worth reading. Yeah. Um. So I kind of got over that hurdle, feeling like it was too self-serving. I've started writing that, and I've really enjoyed that too, because again, it's something different. Um, it's where I'm at in my career now, as I'm trying to not do a lot of the same things. Yeah. Um. Like I did, like a you know, for my first few books were kind of a part of a series. They were all very similar. I've lost a desire for a lot of that writing. I want to challenge myself, and I also want to challenge my readers. And I want to challenge my publishers to have to sell books that they're not used to selling yeah. for me. Yeah. Um, I want to give them a challenge and be like, you know what? I'm, 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 making, a, I'm making a shift. I'm a children's book author now. Yeah. So I'll uh, figure out a way to make it work. <laughs> um, 
it's just it excites me it's fun yeah. to me yeah. um and it all comes back to what we talked about this whole time is just opening myself up to different things yeah like the past couple of years i've opened myself up to so much experience and new material and ways of thinking it's changed the way i approach almost everything in my life my relationships with my friends my work um what i enjoy my hobbies like it's all different now than it was four or five years ago and i'm so much more content and just happy with it yeah i mean i couldn't agree more and i'm right there with you i mean the, the, if i look at the last 10 years of of my life and how how much things have changed uh, you know hobbies what i give a shit about relationships personal and professional that i have and don't have like it's massively different isn't it a good place to be i mean i wouldn't i wouldn't trade it for anything i mean at the time when you're very uh hard-headed yeah um, you take it as a sense of pride, yeah. especially cause you often hear like, Oh, don't change, don't change. And so you wear it as a badge of honor. Like yeah. I'm being myself, yeah. but really you're, you don't realize you have blinders on for sure. And then it's like we talked about, there's a nuance to everything. There's some times in life when you need those blinders on, mm-hmm. you need to focus and you need to not be distracted by what other people think of you. But then there's times in life where you have to take them off. And when you do, you're like, wait a minute, there's a whole fucking world out here I haven't discovered. And then you dip your toe in that water and you realize it's incredibly um, like relieving almost. Yeah. Like you, you, a lot of tension from your body just and stress from your everyday just dissipates when you open yourself up to, especially being wrong. For sure. Like I am so okay with being wrong. Like when I was in advertising too, as a creative director, um, the way structures and hierarchies work in advertising, the creative director is like the last say on everything. And I always felt the need to get my point across. I always felt the need to have my idea be the idea. And I did a lot of disservice to my own career, but also the people I was mentoring below me because I was hard-headed in that sense. And if I were to go back to advertising now, which I don't see happening, I would probably be far more creative and far more successful because I'm okay with being wrong. A hundred percent. You know, I mean, and I, and I think there's, there's a ton of um, authority and power in saying that too, you know, to the people like if it's a gotcha moment of like, Hey, you fucked us up and you shouldn't have done this and you handled this wrong. You're like, you're right. I did fuck that up. And the way you said like people will try and do that to you to embarrass you. But the way, if you accept with grace and like, you know what, you kind of brush it off. Yeah. They go, Oh, there's nothing. It's like, well, fuck, I can't pin them down. They respect you so much more. Yeah. And uh, you you see, whether they admit it or not, they do. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, And you see that, you know, in, in any, um, position of authority or leadership that, that, that rarely happens, you know, especially in politics, but, yeah. you know, police chiefs, I mean, whatever, it's like, that's one thing. I mean, wh- whatever you think of Donald Trump, I mean, I, you know, there's certainly, I think a lot of ways he could have handled it better, but one thing, at least on a, on a principled level that he was good at, not necessarily taking accountability for fucking up, but just being like, yeah, I said that. Yeah, I did. I'd say yeah. it again, you know, but, but just that, that kind of mentality, of, of taking accountability for fucking things up. I mean, not, not caring about it, but being like, yeah, you know what? I, I could have handled that better. Uh, I should have done this instead of that. And, uh, and you're right. I, I fucked that up. Like it, it's hard for somebody to keep coming after you after that. It's impossible. Really? So the way that would work for as a politician is the first couple of times they did it, the opposing, um, you know, media outlets would have a field day with it, yeah. but eventually they'd realize it was a waste of time. Yeah. And, your PR team would be out of a job for yeah immediately. And know? so you would get a lot of pushback, but after you did it, like, even if, even if you just did it over the course, of like a month, your ratings and the respect you would have for yeah. the people would skyrocket. Yeah, I mean, I can but t- they're not willing to take those first, 
it's like everything in life. The first couple of steps are going to be very rocky yeah. and you're going to get some shit, especially like, I flipped on the, the TV in my hotel room last night and I don't even have TV at home. And uh, it was on uh, Fox news and I haven't watched, been watching the news really at all through any of this. And I had no idea how much they attack each other on news these days. Oh, it's crazy. I had never heard a news anchor talk like that. Cause I remember, you know, when I was, when I was watching more news, it's probably seven, eight years ago. I'd never heard news acres go after each other like that. Yeah, it's brutal. And I was like, I told my girlfriend, I was like, holy shit. Yeah. No wonder people are the way they are if you're yeah. watching this all day. And yeah. I was like, I bet if we flip to like CNN or the other one, it's going to be the exact same aggression meeting, like I say, meeting people at 12s. Yeah. I didn't realize news anchors were doing that as extremely as they were. Yeah, there, there's no no two ways about that. And, and I think, you know, leadership is is leadership, whether it's on the macro level of being the president or the micro all the way down to being a fucking parent. Like the, the parallels that exist are the exact same, you know, in mm-hmm. principle. And that same thing with kids. Like if, if your kid calls you out on something and, and you calmly acknowledge like, yeah, yeah, I, I did overreact to that. I, I, you know, I thought I had all the information. I didn't, you were right. You didn't do this. And I, and I overreacted. That's my bad. Like, then your kid's like, what the fuck just happened? You know what's more capable they're going to feel? What's yeah. more confidence they're going to have? Yeah, I mean, number one, like they will come to you with legit problems and, and trust that, that your response is going to be fair and, and, uh, and level enough to where they can tell you anything because they know you're not going to rip their fucking head off. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't consequences. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as a, as a new parent, if there's one piece of advice I can give you is that. The younger they are, the less that applies. I mean, they're, they're more like raising puppies when they're, you know, two, three, four years old. But the older they get, the more that parallel, you know, drifts apart as far as how training dogs and raising kids are. But that, that example of leadership is, is tried and true the, the whole way through it. And, and I'm speaking from experience of fucking that up, you know, when, when they, as they got, you know, eight, nine, 10 years old of, you know, wanting to never be wrong because, well, I'm, I'm their dad and, and I need to set this example of always getting it right. And it's like, well, you, you don't always get it right. You know, you've made bad decisions. You've done dumb shit. You were their age once and, and fucked things up. Even as an adult, like you overreact or you have a bad day or you see things the wrong way or, or you, you don't take accountability or, or whatever it is. And, and by coming clean and being real calm about it, I mean, one of the best pieces of advice that I've mentioned, I don't know how many times on this show to different people now, but that I've probably ever gotten as it relates to, especially with kids, but I think even with, uh, with talking with adults is, is being the thermostat in the room and not the thermometer set the temperature. Don't Mm -hmm. reflect it, especially with kids is, is that if you're setting it at, at 72 degrees and not nine and not allowing it to spike to 98 or is that your quote? No, I wish it it's was. Like Dan Cook will steal that. If it yeah, is. no, I, I wish that's it a good was. one. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I, I say it all the time and, and uh, no, it actually came from a friend of mine's girlfriend who's a therapist. Uh, and, and he, he it's told incredibly me, profound. Yeah. I mean, it's so simple, but Jesus Christ, like it, it's so, so apt for, for that environment. It's like, it's, it's so easy to wrap your mind around that, but it, but it's, it's equally so crucial in that, you know, I have found that that one element of, of taking that ideology into, into any issue with a child makes it night and day different. You know, in, instead of getting pissed off at them and raising your voice and overreacting or whatever is always think I need to set the fucking tone here. And, and when you leave it at that, like it makes everything easier. I mean, every fucking part of it, you know? Um, I mean, I can't recommend that mentality enough, you know? I love uh, that. Yeah. But, um, 
All right, so now that uh, we got the Dr. Phil segment out of the way here. It's important stuff, uh, though. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, is there anything else that you want to cover or talk about as, uh, as we wrap up? I think I'm good. I think I had a great time. Yeah. A good conversation. Amen, likewise. Yeah, thanks for coming, man. I, I know you were kind of in town anyway, or at least in the state. Yeah. Um, but, you know, these, these uh, in-person one-on-ones are, uh, are the only way to do it. So I appreciate yeah, I mean, you taking Yeah, you can't preach time. about the, uh, the perils of social media and not having real conversations. <laughs> over social and media. Then, and then be like, hey, let's uh, do this yeah. over Zoom, buddy. Yeah, yeah, no shit. <laughs> yeah walking contradiction. Uh, well, th- yeah, thank you again for coming. I appreciate it. Where, sure. uh, where can people find you? Uh, social media on Instagram and Twitter, S-G-R-S-T-K. Where, what does that come from? So in college, I had a little clothing brand called Sugar Steak. And uh, that was just like the abbreviated, oh, okay. pulled the vowels out of it. Yeah. And so uh, I had like a couple thousand followers on it on uh, Twitter when it was like the little clothing brand. Yeah. It's like the first time I've ever answered that question on a podcast, by really? the way. Oh, fucking. At least I got one original um, question. Uh, I usually don't. I usually refuse to answer it. Yeah. But you oh, caught me good. in a vulnerable spot. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, it, was, it was a clothing brand I had called Sugar Steak. And it was like, uh, I did like screen printed t-shirts. Yeah. And so I just kept the handle. And I was going to change it. I was going to change it. And then I had like, uh, my following started growing. I was like, shit, if, it's I, too change, late. if I change it now, I'm going to lose everybody. Like people aren't going to know how to tag me. Yeah. And I was like, all right, I just got to own it. We're just sticking yeah. with it now. Yeah. That's funny, man. Oh, it's kind of like the rum tongue, uh, publishing company, right? So yeah. But that was like a joke between yeah. me and my accountant. Still, yeah. And now it's like a great, it's actually a great name. I oh, think. it's awesome. Yeah. It's fantastic. Uh, so that's where you find him. Uh, for you, ladies and gentlemen that are listening, uh, thank you for tuning in. If it weren't for you guys uh, showing your support episode after episode after four years of doing this, uh, I would not have the pleasure and honor to uh, continue to sit behind this desk and, uh, and interview such interesting guys uh, such as the captain. So um, thank you for tuning in. Uh, if you didn't like it, feel free to choke yourself as always. And until next time, this is Mike Drop. Before Sarah discovered Chumbacasino.com, she enjoyed chamomile tea. Come on, big jackpot. And being in PJs by six. Let's go. The new fun Sarah often thinks about the old boring Sarah. And wonders if that Sarah ever really existed. Chumba Casino has over 100 casino style games. So join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. No purchase necessary. We were created by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. 
The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market. Rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.